I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Uh, we have a very special guest with us today in Louisiana, Todd. Todd, how are you doing, buddy? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing real good. Actually, I'm from Kentucky. Oh, you're from Kentucky. Well, Tom, would you like to take this away since you guys have chatted? Yeah, absolutely. Todd, thanks for coming on the show. You and I talked yesterday, and uh, you oh, had... You. Absolutely. Yes, it was, it was a very good conversation. Now, you had an encounter that it's, I'm going to split it up into two, two sections. And the first section is right. it, was, it was very much like what a lot of people see. And I'm not going to steal your thunder. I'm, I'm going to let you uh, talk about your no, encounter. No, no, And the second part. You're not stealing my thunder. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then the second part is it's out of the box. But all this goes to show is this is a very unpredictable topic. And sometimes it runs in different directions. So, Todd, start from the beginning and tell us what you were doing, what happened, and then just kind of lead in, you know, just give us a lot of details. Okay, well, first, I'll, I guess I need to start off with saying that I was, I had just gone through a breakup and it was, it needed to be done. But that being said, I needed to get out of the house. And I'm a, a very outdoorsy person, just like everybody that comes on the show, probably. And I started off by just going to these parks that were, it's called, it's part of a section or a part of a park system that is called the Louisville Loop. And it's just, it pretty much... It's just like a concrete pathway that just runs the outer perimeter of Louisville and it connects all the parks together. So if you wanted to ride a bike, you could literally start off to like the west end of Louisville and circle yourself all the way around. It's I think it's about a 90 to 100 mile loop. And inside of these park systems, there's different trails that you can go to. And let's see here, this particular, I don't mind saying it, uh, this particular park is called Broad Run Park. And I'm not the type of person that likes walking on trails. I don't, when I go hiking, I want to be out in the woods, walking through the leaves and just feeling like I'm in nature. Not, I don't want to pass nobody. That's just how I am. I want to feel like I'm out there by myself. And so um, I started it, it. The first thing that I found, it was on 
Christmas. It was on Christmas week. I don't remember what day it was specifically, but it was 2017 Christmas week. I was, um, I need to back up for a second. Um, I stopped going to these parks, but there was this one part of the park that I liked going to. It was, uh, back when this land was settled in Kentucky, the, from what the stories are is that the, uh, the first settlers, settlers here, uh, they settled, they wanted to divert this river called, it, its name is Floyd's Fork. And, uh, they would, they would build these rock walls. I'm guessing, obviously, they got the rocks out of the river and they built this, these walls to divert the river. And I always liked walking there, but I found by looking through Google Maps that I could, it was another, I could get to this place and be able to walk through woods. Like I didn't have to walk on no trails and it was still government land. It wasn't private property. So I felt comfortable enough to start walking on this and never had any trouble. And this one particular day, uh, I always try to go in the day, like in the middle of the day. So just in case I wanted to look around more, I didn't have to worry about getting back to my truck at, you know, hurrying back to my truck, but, uh, usually, okay. Anyways, uh, my throat, my throat, sorry, my stomach's already coming up to my throat thinking about what I'm going to get to. Uh, so I'm sorry if I sound like I'm stuttering or something, but, uh, anyways, uh, the first thing that I was thing that I found was a, a, a footprint. I was walking through the valley of this of a creek system that flows into Floyd's Fork, and this footprint. I'm sure you've you've heard of all these footprints, these sizes, but this thing was nice. I didn't know it at the time, but I had came back a couple of days later with a measuring tape. This was 19 inches, eight and a half, nine inches wide, at where the toes would be. I was, that's what started it for me. That same day, I was looking around more. I walked to the top of this hill, and I don't know what y'all think. Well, I've talked to Tom a little bit about the structures, and I don't know what, I can't really remember what Tom thinks about the structures, but I found this particular structure. It's still there today. It's not really changed much, but there's been more sticks added to it, but, uh, it's just, it was a simple dead cedar tree kind of slumped over and it had a bunch of sticks lined up all along. And, you know, it could have been a human that did that or whatever, but me thinking about that footprint. And also I forgot to say that footprint that I found, it also had a smaller footprint inside of it. Like it was in a creek, so it's like a smaller one had stepped in the bigger one's footprint, I guess, for whatever reason. But you could clearly see a big footprint and a smaller footprint inside of the big one. So that that totally 
mine effs me is that I know I, I'm not going to cuss on here. I, I'm not going to, but my mind was drawn to this big time. And I do have military history. Uh, I don't matter right now because this didn't happen when I was in the military, but I have been able to require some skills of tracking, you know, you're taught basic stuff like that in the military anyways. But anyways, I, I just, I started finding little bitty things, like weird things. Like there would be on a, on the side of a, the hill, there would be like a bunch of leaves brushed out of the way and sticks, like four sticks arranged in a square pattern. And then there would be, I'd be walking along the creek looking for more things, and then there would be rock stacks, like in the middle of the creek, but it would be like a dry creek bed, but there would be uh, this particular, this one that I found, I even have it on video, I think on my YouTube channel. Uh, It's a stack of four, it's four stacks in a square pattern, and whatever was doing this likes the shape, the square shape, I guess. I'm not sure. Because there was a lot of things that whatever was doing this, it liked the square pattern. And so there was this little bitty things that I found. I found another tree that was falling over. And, well, you can say it was nature, but there was a limb perfectly balanced on top of it with another limb that, like, hooked, like, I can't really describe it. I I wish we were on Skype so I could show you that it was, the way that the limb had grown, it was, like, hooked into one side of the limb, and it was like a counterweight, and it was just sitting there perfectly. And that's just, you know, little things that I've noticed. And so... I got real accustomed to walking just, you know, sometimes I would stay in this area the whole, the whole time I was there, but then there would be other times when I would walk the entire distance to those, to the rock walls that I was talking about. Cause it is interesting to me, that kind of stuff, history period. But, uh, then I guess that's about it on, um, on that type of stuff. I mean, there's probably other little things that might come to mind, but overall, me, uh, it's Hey, I'm going to interrupt real quick. You're um, good. Todd, You're good. quick Go question. Um, you know, the rock stacks that you found in the Creek and you know, you're, you're, you're arranging a square. How remote yeah. is that area? I mean, what's, what's the likelihood that, that people may be there or may uh, travel to that location? I go. I still go to that place. I've never seen another human being there. You know, I'm not there every day. I'm not. I'm there probably two or three times a week, and um, I've never seen nobody. The closest, the the closest thing there that somebody would be there is that trail that I was talking about, and I, it just eventually where I walk through. It just, you know, I didn't. I just picked this place because it looked like it was. I wouldn't run into nobody on a map. So I just 
Right. I, I guess I was lucky lucky finding this place. I don't know if you talk, consider it lucky or not, but uh, yeah, like the closest, like from where this is going on to like where I it would where I would eventually connect up with the trail. It was probably about a two and a half mile walk, and there's no roadways through there. It's all government. It's pristine wood, and it's probably been logged a long hundred years ago, but there's nothing going on there since. Okay. Yeah, no. Yeah, keep going. Very interesting. Okay, so um, I guess I'll just... Uh, the particular event that I've initially called you about, I guess that's uh, what I'm going to lead into now. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so uh, it was just a normal, any other day, and I guess I'll I'll go ahead and lead into it, and I'll say what I'll, like I said yesterday, like I told you first, and then I told you what I thought happened afterwards. But, see, I was getting real used to this area, and whatever animals was there was probably getting used to seeing me, too. And so, and I don't know how I was, on other encounters, more like they got the beat on you you don't got the beat on them and so i don't understand this part now there's a lot of things i don't understand about this particular event but uh <clears throat> so i was just yeah i would have, walk, I would have to out. agree with you yeah yeah sorry i, I didn't mean to step on you but i would agree no 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 they no tend to get a, they tend to get the you don't usually get an opportunity to approach or sneak up on them without them knowing about it. So that was, but it does happen. And that was one of the interesting things yes. about your. And, and that's encounter. one thing that I have heard that I'm sorry to cut you off. It's one thing that I have heard is that there's something weird about water that they, that kind of messes. And I'm, that might be wrong, but it seems like if you do get the bead on them, get the drop on whatever you want to call it, it's always usually around water for some reason. And that day, there's, there's a beautiful waterfall that it's like spring-fed. It's, it's not a creek or anything until after the waterfall, until further down the hill after the waterfall. It's literally water coming out of the side of this hill. And it's enough water usually, especially after it rains, and it'll stay like that for a couple of days. It will be a pretty good waterfall size waterfall and so the way that I go is that I usually tend to walk up this hill like I usually tend to kind of straddle the side of a hill especially when because I have certain things you know every time you go to a particular place especially people that go out and look for these type of things and you have your own area you tend to you know want to go make your rounds and check on things I guess you can say and so I was walking around this, I guess a corner you can say, but it's kind of like around a knob of a hill. I, there's no other way I can describe it right now. But And all of a sudden, I had tunnel vision. It was, I, I, I just had tunnel vision. There was this thing, huh, 
<laughs> I said, dang, I'm sorry. We talked about that yesterday, Tom. Uh, I saw this being standing at this waterfall with his hands cupped like a cup, drinking this, drinking the water from the waterfall. I saw immediately, I knew what this was. And right at that time, that had been the first time I can could remember that I wasn't thinking about this thing. Right when I wasn't thinking about this thing, there they are, right there in front of me. And it was probably a good half, half football field length away from me. So immediately I ducked to a tree. That's the first thing I think of. Let's go to this. Let's, I need to get to this tree. So if he turns around, he can't see me. And the first thing that stands out when I'm peeking around this tree is how big this thing's butt is. It's his butt, I, I was, I'm 50, 60 yards away, but this butt had to be about four foot wide. And I came back after all this happened. It took me a couple, took me about a week and a half to come back. And I did bring her measuring tape because I wanted to measure how tall that waterfall was. Because usually I go on top of that waterfall because you can walk right onto it. And so I measured it, and it's a good, it's a little bit less than uh, 10 feet. Almost, it's like about an inch or two less than 10 feet down to where the water splashes and hit into the water. So anyways, I didn't mean to get off on that tangent. I just... That just popped in my head. But anyways, this, while I'm staring at this thing, it can't be more than five, six seconds at the most. And I'm still in this tunnel vision of looking at this thing. Who knows what thoughts are in my head. And all of a sudden, I hear a pow. And immediately, my mind goes right to that noise. And I know it came from behind me. I spin around. There's this little one looking at me. He's standing right next to a, to about a five-year-old cedar tree. That don't matter. I just, I, I don't know why I even said the five-year-old cedar tree. What caused the pal? But what did the pal sound like? It was like a wood-on-wood sound. And this juvenile, as you would call it, had a stick in his hand, probably about two foot long, about an inch in diameter and he's not I immediately go with my hands up and I don't know exactly what I was saying obviously I don't know if I don't know if they know English or what they say or if they even talk but I'm I guess I'm saying whoa everything's cool everything's cool and by the time second time I say that I immediately, oh, yeah, there's another one behind me. I turn around. He's gone, completely gone. Like, from the amount of time that I thought I was safe enough to get a good glance without feeling like this one other one would come towards me, and I gave it a good look. I do not know where this other one was. There's the, the hill. The hills around where he was at is really steep. I know these things can move good, but I don't know how he moved as quick as he did to get wherever he went to because he was gone. 
anyways, I'm kind of freaking out about where he's where the, the big one was. So I'm backing up, going up this hill, and now this is where I told you yesterday, Tom, that being in the military, you kind of pride yourself on certain things that if you get in certain situations, you can take care of yourself. And I I, I completely mishandled this situation because I, and another thing is I don't know how both of my feet came out from the, uh, out from under me. I know how one did cause I slipped on a on a stick and but I went down, pal, I'm out. I don't know if I hit my head. All I know is that I'm out. I know I did when I woke up because my head was hurting. And I don't know exactly how how long I was out, but I was out. And eventually, I come to because... I've, I I still remember laying there and eventually being brought back to reality from things from something hitting me repeatedly, and I could even hear around me in the dirt and the foliage around me something hitting, and <clears throat> oh no! Wait a second! That's uh, when I'm, what hit you? What what did you? Go into details on that. Uh, Explain that a little bit. You want me to tell you how it felt hitting me or what? Well, no. Go into so, detail. Like... Well, where did it hit you? Front, back, on your head? Um, oh, no, no. I was, on, I was on my back. It was hitting me in my – well, it was hitting around me, first of all, That I, what I could tell. And he was – after I woke up, they were still throwing me. What they were were rocks and other little things. I don't think it was just rocks. There was probably little sticks, whatever. And right when I sat up and kind of got... And that's another thing I didn't tell you yesterday. I had a backpack on. My backpack wasn't on my back anymore. It was over in front of me. It was like they took it off of me and then... When they laid me back down, they put it on top of me. But it was around my right arm, around my shoulder on my right arm. And it was hitting. Like, I I think I even had a rock hit me or something hit me in my face. I don't know what it was. But they weren't throwing these things hard. They didn't feel like. They were just, like, lobbing them over. Trying, I guess what I think they were doing was trying to get me to wake up, see if I was going to come back, too see if I was okay. That's what I tell myself to make myself feel better, I guess. But as I set up, that's right. I, right. I'm looking right at the big one and he's backing up into like, there's like a tree line right there. I was in the valley right, right near my truck. Probably about, I would say a hundred to 120 yards from my truck, which in the woods, that's not far at all. And, but I see this, I've heard it said before, and and I understand it very much. These, when it was backing up into the foliage, 
it like the foliage just swallowed it in. Like it's hard to explain. Like it's just well, was like, it was it brushy? Was it was it thick and brushy foliage? Yes, 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 yes. It, but it was not like dead. It wasn't dead foliage. It was like little bushes and tree. Like you know, you know what it's like before. Like the when there's wood, there's nothing on the ground like underneath like really growing it's always just trees and leaves and stuff but when there's not really trees in that area there's smaller bushes in there at least here and where i live at it's like that so it was not really trees in this area because i was right on the edge of a power line thing like not the like a normal telephone pole like the wood ones like made out of trees it was the metal ones that go really, like, really high up in the sky. And they're, like, holding, like, 10 to 15 wires. And it was cut through this property. And I was, they laid me right on the – or they did something to put me on the ground. They, I don't know if they carried me or if they drugged me, but I'm pretty sure they carried me. But anyways, they they laid me right on the edge of this – clear this cleared out area and that was where that foliage was like getting ready to go back into the woods and he just it was at very like if you think about it and when I think about it in my mind it was just like he was one with his surroundings and he just went back into let me ask you this it was really strange yeah in regards to that was he moving when he went back into the woods, was he moving laterally or was he moving directly, like walking backwards, just vertically, you know, into the woods? Um, in other words, in other words, was I know he moving what you're from one side to, yeah, one side to the other, or just walking in a straight line, perpendicular? It or, was like first, because when I set up, he was walking towards towards the foliage and then he turned around to look at me and then that and he kind of it's kind of weird the movement like he sidestepped but then kind of backed into the thing i guess to make sure i wasn't going to do anything to him i don't know i don't know what i would do to him but yeah that's about it i i was in a day well the reason i ask about whether yeah no the reason i asked if it was lateral or side to side, you know, the, the human brain is set up to really pick a movement that is lateral side to side, but going directly towards or away from, yeah. Okay. He was going side to side or he's going directly away from you. He was, it's kind of hard to explain. Like he was, it was like, he was trying to get into like, like maybe like a deer, like he was, he was, had something like a spot in the, in the foliage where he was trying to get to, like maybe like a deer trail or something. It wasn't just like, there was like a bunch of bushes and he just went over all all on top of them. There was like a little space there and he just like, he, he was walking to Oh, Okay. So he was, his, he was negotiating. Kind of like if you think of um, the Patty film, when he's when they're walking away from the camera and he's kind of like she is kind of like looking back and then that that kind of way like walking yeah. kind of sideways and then 
It okay. stops, kind of pivots, and then just backs in. And I, it, it sounds strange, I know, but that's exactly what it did. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, they have a different, uh, biomechanics is different than us. So just pretty much any kind of movement they do is going to be odd. You know, our brain's going to be a little bit perplexed by that. And then in conjunction with the rest of your experience, um, yeah, I'm just trying to picture this in and my mind, thing and, I, and that's one thing I do need to say is that, and I'm sure y- if y'all has seen y'all in y'all's encounters, that what I saw on both of them, they the torso was a lot longer than its legs. Its legs is only like a third of its body. And the rest of it was like its button up was its torso. Like, and that, that was really strange to me. And I didn't think about it till after when I got home, what I was recounting what I saw. And I don't, I, that just was really strange to me about how, how that these were built. And I wasn't expecting that. And I wasn't expecting to see anything really. I thought, I, at the time, I didn't know what I was. I knew kind of what I was dealing with because of the footprints, but I wanted to, you know, I was still like wanting to, you know, what, uh, like I knew what I was dealing with. I need to say that, but I didn't, it wasn't 100% until this happened. And so this, I, this, this whole experience is really, changed a lot of my life and I think about it all the time because I don't know oh yeah why they why they did what they did you know they could have just left me there or they could have did something bad to me but they well you know one of the helped. you and I speculated about that yesterday and you came yeah. up with an interesting thought that was Possibly they just wanted you out of the area without yes. uh, drawing attention to themselves by having you become a statistic. Exactly. But, and the only thing I, if it was that, then the only reason I could think of is that they didn't want nobody else coming in there looking for me, you know, that's, and it, and if that is true, then how smart are these things? You know, yeah, like, it's uh, what we think they're of, pretty intelligent. Oh, I, now I know. Well, there's something there's one thing that I didn't tell you yesterday that I was kind of saving for today. And it was because I thought that we were going to be on Skype and I was going to be able to show you something. But now we're since it's on a phone call, it's kind of ruined. But I'll go ahead and say it. Um, after all this happened, I just felt like I needed to thank them. I don't know. You can call me crazy. I don't know why, but there was a, and there's one particular little area in that little area that I always, you know, if I was coming and going, I would sit down for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. I smoke cigarettes. And that's one thing when I knew what I was dealing with, I never threw out a cigarette, but I always, when I would be done smoking, I would put it in my pocket. Because, you know, I didn't want to 
that kind of stuff is disrespectful, especially. And if these things are as smart as they, I think they are, we all think they are, then like something like peeing in the woods in their area would probably tick them off, you know, like, you know, I don't know. So I would always hold my, hold my bladder and I would always, when I was done smoking, I would always take the cherry off the cigarette, make sure it wasn't going to catch leaves on fire, and I would put put the thing in my pocket. But anyways, I would always sit down, and then by the time after all this happened, I uh, figured that if they are still in the area and they knew that when all this happened, I kind of figured, I was thinking, like, maybe they had seen me, and maybe... Maybe that's a part of why they did what they did, but I I went against what I should have did, and I was just thinking it was going to be a thank you, and I put a couple apples on this place where I, and I even said out loud, these are for you guys, thank you very much, and I walked off, and I, I didn't come back for a few, for a few uh, weeks, and when I did, I found what, where I sit at, where I usually, because there's this falling down tree, and there's a particular part in the tree where I would sit, because there's like a little indention that's perfect for my butt to fit into, so I just always sit, sit there. So, right there where that indention is, I found it's what I can only figure is some kind of crystal. It looks like quartz or something. And I don't know who put it there. I like to think they did. But I figured I would share that with you. And I have it. I was going to show it to you on the screen. But and it looked like like it was just something found on the ground somewhere. Like it's when you think of quartz, you think of something that you buy like in a store or something, or at one of those gift shop things, and, but this one has about half of the rock, you can tell is quartz, and the rest of it is whatever the rest of the rock is, was, or is, and I can't tell what it is, but I figured that was really fascinating, that for some reason. What is the chance, well, I was just wondering if there's any rocks around the area that may have natural quartz in it, that it just trying to you know put some some perspective to this or or yes, what maybe it yes, was this place there yeah i don't know but it was right there where i put my butt at right there where i sit at and i came okay back. to me to me i believe i would like to think that because the apples were gone which you know deers could have came by anything uh squirrels or whatever could have came by probably took the bite out of a couple of them but the bag and everything was gone because i did leave the bag i didn't leave the apples in the bag i just had it curled up in this little nook in the tree and i put it i put it the bag right there and i and i laid out the apples in a row there's four apples and two for both of them that's what i was thinking and i came back this is what i found and i Really wish I was able to show it to you. I guess I can take a picture of it and send it to you, Tom. Or yeah, that'd be uh, great. Uh, I'd yeah, love to see it. Tom. Yeah. And that's 
as of right now, now you, that's you basically also, about it. Well, you you had mentioned when we talked yesterday that you had what kind of got you intrigued in this area was a 19-inch footprint, which yes, I think sir. that equates yes. to 10 feet, more well, more than 10 feet. Um, have you seen other footprints, right. or was there just the was there just the Actually, one, or was the ground conducive to a trackway? Actually, I found no, no, no. That I, I've never found a trackway. I wish I have. I wish I could have, but uh, no. Uh, I, I've overall, including the two prints in one, the first one I found, I have found six prints in this little area, and I. Two of the two of them that I found, the first one that I found, and another one that was a very strange footprint. The hill was really small, but the where the toes are at, and it looked almost like there's four toes on this this one track. And I I made a a video of that one, and it's on my YouTube, and uh. It's, uh, and I can send you the video, maybe, if you can get large file videos, or I, maybe I can chop it down to something smaller so I can send it to you, something like that. But I, overall, I found six footprints, and that's, when I, finding those, to me, is just, that makes me feel so good when I find those, because they're never, they're never, any of all of them have been different sizes, so that means that there's more than just two out where I go, and it's more like it's a family thing out there, maybe, and that, I don't know if that, I should be more worried about that, or if it just makes me feel good, because there's not just two there, and it's only 10 minutes Well, it, it is house. good to, yeah, the, the, the footprints are, I think, are interesting, because that's you know short of seeing the creature that's kind of the next best thing it's it's right up there with you know this is tangible evidence and you're in the location you can tell if it's if it's uh, legit or not and uh yeah no it's yes. it's, it's very interesting yeah and so this whole experience for me is it's gone from one spectrum to another like i I was I would never expected to have anything like that happen to me, but I feel like it happened for some reason. I I don't know what reason, but and to me personally, either way I look at it, if they did get me out of there, so to so to save their own hide, so no nobody else would come in there or whichever way you want to look at it. To me. They still helped me, and that's the way I look at it. Because they they could have just left me there, or like I already yeah, said, that's undeniable. Or, sure, yeah, yeah. If they pick you up, and you know, I'm just thinking maybe in the process of moving you, the backpack. You know, we don't know how, you know, how experienced are they at moving people around. Maybe the backpack kind of fell off. And or just was hanging from yeah. one shoulder. Exactly. If, if I understand correctly, it, one one strap of the backpack was on one of your arms. Is that right? 
on, on my right shoulder, around my right shoulder, yes. Okay, all right. So who knows? I mean, that's – but that would kind of make sense. Um, and, again, when this happened, 2019? This happened March 16th, 2019. I, that, that date was burned into my mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that happens. And another, and, and one last thing I would like to say about this particular event is that somehow they had no had to been watching me because they could have carried me any direction, but they took me towards my truck, and that's some that's something else I think about. You know, like. They had to be knowing, seeing me and seeing which way I come, and they might have followed me out in some way or another, and I didn't know before. And they knew where I parked, and I guess I'm looking at it. Well, that would make sense. Sure. I mean, if you, yeah, if it would make sense because when you go into their territory, they're, I think they have a keen awareness. Uh, they have a very keen situational exactly. awareness. Oh, yeah. And so for whatever reason, if they picked you up, then they obviously chose to take you close to your vehicle. Apparently, they didn't take you right exactly. to it. But, uh, no. <laughs> no. I, I think that would be asking a little bit too much of them. Cause they would have had to cross the street and everything. Imagine being somebody driving up his street and seeing two uh, Creek Devils or Sasquatches carrying a human. <laughs> I just popped into my head. I'm sorry. Yeah, because <laughs> this was you know, very... about a, about a, about an hour before sunset. So I mean, I, it was. I don't know. Let me ask I'm you gonna, this. In ahead. that area. Um, what about other people? Have you, have you spoken to anybody else who, is there any history? Is there any legend, um, or current this, people that you know this particular that have had area, sightings? This particular area, people, that's why it took me so long. You know, I was thinking about this before I came on this to me personally, this has been at least, I mean, a year and almost a year in the making because you know I talked to you a year ago and then you know life got in the way but people here and I don't understand it I think there's more sightings and it's a little bit more you're able to talk about it a little bit more up in Oregon and Washington nobody here talks about it and I don't know why like you can say Bigfoot around here and they look like at you like you're death like you're the devil like and it's really strange that's why i've honestly it's why i hesitated coming on and back then this time i had i just had to get this out because it needs to be out there so no yeah and that's what i find i I, i'm as confused as well i shouldn't say confused but because there are areas and, uh, for example, <clears throat> Arkansas is a hotbed of these things, for sightings anyway. Yes. But Ohio, 
Ohio, Pennsylvania, that's uh, a lot of activity there. And then North and South Carolina have, and West Virginia all have a substantial, um, I don't want to say economy, but, but you know, uh, history of these things. So it just kind of, it seems like it, it has faded away or for whatever reason, in certain areas, it's just simply not, as you said, it's almost like a taboo topic. Is that right? I, I guess so. It's almost, it, yeah, you can say taboo topic. It's, nobody talks about it here. And the only guy, I, before I came on here, and I, before I told you yesterday, I had already told you this, uh, I've only told one person. I, I couldn't talk about it with my family. Because I've I've just if I mentioned Bigfoot they kind of like are you serious? And I've only talked about it with my neighbor because I finally because he had brought it up one day about a video that he saw about Bigfoot and I was like you know what? And I told him about my experience and ever since then like all the time he wants to send me videos and he like we're we just when we get together we just talk about everything bigfoot sasquatch creek devil and he's actually the one that he told me a pretty crazy story that he he don't per he wasn't personally there but he knows of somebody back in the 60s and 70s he used to uh uh vacation in smoky mountains up there in cage cove and uh, i don't know if you ever heard of it supposedly it's kind of a little spot where they are seeing it. I think it's kind of that little area where you, you know uh, that missing. Yeah, we actually have some that, people that, in that area that. Yeah, where it's it, where that it is a, an active went, area went missing. Yeah, it's where that Dennis Martin went missing. Like it's and uh, well, in that particular area, it's not like right there. But anyways, uh, he told me that he has a someone that he believes that he was in Vietnam with that told him that uh, when they were vacationing in Cade's Cove that there was like they would see them at night and it, the juveniles would I mean this sounds crazy <laughs> like when he said this I was like what are you serious and he said that this guy told him that they would watch these juveniles come down from the hill and like it was like a game to them. They would come down, smack the RVs, and then run back up the hill. And they would like kind of dance around and like make weird noises at night. And after they did, it was kind of like they were playing. That was their form of playing. And when he told me that, I was like, man, that's crazy. I believe them. That sounds like you know, just like kids that, just like our kids, they play. They play jokes and stuff i can see them doing that you know and that's just that's now this just is in kentucky that, that, no no that this, this was is in, in the smoky Ma no 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 this was in tennessee in the smoky mountain national park okay. is this gotcha this particular this particular place called cage cove it's like a old settlement from like the 1800s and it, it was made into like a kind of like an rv park and you can go up there and visit and stuff like that you know and they would sleep up there at night and these things would come down right around the way he put it he didn't say it but it seemed like when he was talking like right around uh sunset and they would 
a couple of them would come down like one at a time, smack it, smack us out of the RV and go run back up the hill. And the next one would come down and do it. And, but I mean, they weren't like right there watching them like 10 feet away. They were a good football field length away, maybe, but this is what he told me. And I was at that. I believe it. But if it is true, then that's, that's crazy. It's, you know, let me back up again, back to your, your encounter. Um, what was the coloration of the big adult that was drinking the water with its cupped hands? And what was the coloration of the juvenile with the <laughs> stick in its hand? Uh, okay. Since you said the big one first, uh, I'll start with that one. Uh, the, the big one, it was like a lighter brown with like a hint of red at the end of like at the end of the hair. And it seemed whenever I, like I told you, whenever I got the best look of, of it, whenever, even though I was dazed, I still got a pretty good look at it when it was backing up into the foliage and it had a little bit of gray on its chest, but maybe it was more of because its skin on its face was gray, and that's what stood out the most. It was like a very odd gray color that I've never seen before. And the juvenile, like I was saying yesterday, I used to have a friend that had what well, I could have sworn was black hair, but if you put, if you stood next to something black, you could automatically tell that it was brown. Like you could tell more that it was brown instead of black. This is what this juvenile hair looked like. It was very, very, very dark brown. And the entire, it was one color, the entire thing. And he had, seemed like he had more hair on his face. And weirdly, it had more hair on his face than the older one. That's the way, and its skin was a dark, like almost like like a really dark gray. Like the older one was like a lighter gray color, like its skin, not its fur. And the juvenile's uh, skin was like a dark gray. And I would say it was a little bit smaller than me in height. And he didn't have the, it wasn't, Nothing on it was bulky yet. Like he was still maybe, I don't know if, I guess they go through like what we do, puberty. But it's not like he had reached puberty yet and started putting on, you know, that mask that I guess these things do. So that's about. So he looked like it. a youngster then. He yes. Had, did yes, he have the yes, look was, of a. You, not just the size, but you can look at him and tell this is a young guy. Yeah, yeah. But, well, his, from what I remember, his skin was wrinkly in his face. But I don't know if that's just the way they are, period. Or if, I don't know. I just know that, you know, obviously kids, human kids, they don't have wrinkly faces, but this one did like, well, maybe it's the way that he was making his face. Cause he wasn't just sitting there with like a, 
straight face. He was making weird facial gestures to me, and maybe that's because he was wrinkling up his forehead, and maybe that's what, what I'm remembering. So, Well, you know what's interesting about that is the fact that he seemed to be looking out for the older one and providing a kind of a uh, an alert or an a warning early warning system for the for the older one yeah because i mean but that's another thing how i don't see how i didn't see this guy like unless he was i mean anybody could be hiding behind a tree but this thing was close and i don't know how i did not see this guy and it it's this whole thing is just has really mind warped me. I got to be honest. No, but that's a good point because here it is. It's obviously a youngster, very much a, a juvenile. And yet, even at that young age, they obviously have, they the, already had the skill. the skill. Yeah. For yeah. They already had the skills. Exactly. And then just like I was talking about, if the story is true about at one at one point, they got the skills to be concealed, but then at, at another end of the spectrum, they play games and run down and smack, smack on the side of the RV. On the RV, I mean, which more I say it sounds crazy, but I mean, I'm inclined to believe the guy because you know, I mean, well, it's, if you look at behavior and repeating patterns, it's it's not inconsistent entirely because. Yeah. Quite often, people report having the side of their cabin, house, RV, or camper. Exactly, yeah. Something comes up yeah, and just right. smacks it. So uh, perhaps juveniles are just, yeah, who knows? This is a skill. This is a, they have a purpose that's unbeknownst to us, known only to them. But it's it's part of the behavior of these creatures. Pattern, uh, yeah. a repeating pattern of behavior. Yep, you're right, Tom. Like, it's it, there's more of a science to this than I first first knew that there was. Like, there's a whole lot more to this, and I don't know where to start. Like, I'm still like that's what got me into listening to you guys and other like you know there are some other podcasts just like everybody else. I try to get the but I love you guys and. And I, I usually use y'all's y'all show as like a tool to learn from my experience, you know, because well, we appreciate be, that. Yeah, it's it, I appreciate you. Let's guys. face it. It's a, it is a journey of discovery and exploration and education, learning about these creatures. So and part of it is just those repeating patterns. So. You know, when you talk about the the somebody has reported seeing these young ones going up and smacking the side of a uh, you know somebody's trailer or what have you, it could almost be as if they're learning how to do this so that later on, as they become adults, this will serve a very specific purpose. And we don't know what that is, but it does seem to be. A, a, a behavior that's reported consistently with these things. So yeah, who knows? Like Maybe as little ones do, are just practicing. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like everything they do, it, it, 
even more so than humans, everything they do serves an immediate purpose. So you never know. You never know. Yeah, no, I've I don't always think wondered. Like, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say I don't think there's happenstance or or haphazard reason, you know, for adults or for these creatures. Excuse me, for humans or these creatures. You know, we all do stuff for a reason, including yeah. animals in the animal kingdom, these creatures. So I think it's all part of the demystification process is yes. seeing these repeating patterns and understanding what what's what's the you know, why are they doing this? Yeah. Yep. I've always like why do you think they the why it's such a big well if it if these things do it if when it does come out why hasn't it came out yet I guess is the best thing to say like I still don't they people need to know about these things and there's going to be a point where they can't have this no more I don't know when it's going to get to that point but it seems like I I wonder what made them be start hiding this in the first place. You know, well, like, I don't is know. that a good question? Um, yeah, of course. There's no such thing as a bad question. I look at it from the standpoint. It, it used to be a topic, and again, I, I go over this time and again with the news media. It was treated as a serious, if not a human interest story. Early on, uh, early on, when I mean like, like in the 50s, 60s, 70s, in the late 70s, early 80s, it started to take on a silliness, a tabloid kind of, yeah, you know, you've seen the pictures, uh, or, or the yeah, because they made know. it that way, they made it take on the silliness, right? And there's, so, there's who knows, maybe, yeah, it could be associated with that, so. Uh, yeah, I would like to see it kind of return back to where the topic is treated a little more seriously. Yes. I'll, I can't wait because there there's a lot of things that need to be out. Not only that, but anyways, thank you very much, Tom, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I was going to say. Well, the pleasure is all ours. That, it really is. Todd, we really appreciate right, it. Well, Tom and uh, Will, especially Will, and I love Tom, but I gotta say to Will that the very after my very first thing of of finding the footprint, I immediately when I got home, I started looking up uh, Bigfoot experiences and, and like podcasts and stuff. And the very first show I listened to, you were on. Oh, I, awesome! I've been a fan. I was, and I've been a fan since. And I've, I've listened through the whole witness of the unknown. I've I've listened to I'll, I can't say I listen to every single show because sometimes life gets in the way. But you've helped you and your um, uh, people that you had on have helped me a lot through this. I'm, and I'm really glad questions of that. that I've had. So so I really appreciate what you're doing. It really does help. Well, and we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about your experiences because it really does help other people. 
Yeah, I just hope that this, because, you know, I fought with coming on, like, you know, after I felt so bad, like, kind of, you know, like, not hesitating and not wanting to come on back in October. I felt so bad leaving you guys hanging. It was eating me, so I just, I had to I had to contact Tom and say, hey, I'm ready to get this over with. I'm ready to get it out there. Todd? So I thank, I'm glad thank it, you very I'm, much. I'm glad, yes, no, we're glad you came on board. So thanks again. If you, and if you've um, ever got stay any, in touch. Yeah, if you've got any questions for us anytime, you know, always drop us a line, you know, and we'll help out any way we can. I will. All right, Will. I appreciate it so much again. Uh, y'all y'all have been a lifesaver for me. When I, I've had no one to talk to except my neighbors sometimes and y'all guys were there. When we you didn't even know it. You guys you guys have been here. So I, <laughs> Good again, to hear. thank you very, very much. Well thank All right. you, Todd. Thanks, Todd. Have a great night. All right, everyone. All right, you too. Have a good one. All right, everyone, stay tuned for the next segment. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Uh, fellas, we'll just kind of jump into the Q&A. Um, Brian, why don't we start with you? Sure. Uh, one of our listeners on YouTube mentioned the fact that a lot of park rangers out there know a lot more. And I know that we've talked about this before, but what he was saying is that probably maybe a good majority of them know more, but they're reluctant to maybe share their information. I, I know that we kind of covered this before, but can you kind of elaborate on like what you think? Like what what is your position on, on this i mean are a lot of people out there not just park rangers but i mean just like people in, in general that work in that uh field do they know and they just don't talk about it or like like what do you think well i th i think what goes on i mean you know subjects like this at least it used to be and i'm sure it still is in a lot of quarters um kind of the death knell for your career you know if you go talking about bigfoot I have no doubt that people that are out camping and hiking and things like that, when they see something, those are the people they would go to, right? And that's kind of the natural uh, position I think someone would take is that, you know, you find a ranger or, you know, some, some official in whatever capacity is in that setting. And, um, you know, I'm sure they, they listen and, uh, you know, nod appreciatively and all that, but, uh, you know, they're not going to talk about it because I'm sure their superiors would think they were crazy. And, and yeah, and I know that we've talked about that before. And, and also what he was mentioning is that some people might be reluctant to come on because even though obviously we, we do an audio podcast, but they are still maybe fearful of their voice being heard by whoever their superior or whatever. Uh, do we have a, a way to kind of like hide their voice if they ever wanted to come on? Are you talking about somebody in an official capacity like that, like a ranger or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, we could we could disguise your voices, sure. Okay, perfect, perfect. And that goes for anybody, you know. That's you know, if you you don't want uh, you know anyone to know who you are, you know, we can certainly have your voice disguised. 
And also, let me piggyback on that as well and say that if you are someone out there that's listening and you like the show and you have something that you want to discuss, but you're you're fearful that you might be discovered, or quote unquote, found, if you will, uh, you can tell us your story and we can kind of relay it on the show and we don't have to use you, your name or anything like that. We can just kind of tell your story and we can hide your location. We can hide your name and everything like that. So you don't have to worry about that. Tom, you have any thoughts on this? Yeah. I was going to say, Brian, that's, a, that is probably the best, um, voice recognition, uh, defeating mechanism I can think of. You guys send us a written, you know, whatever the, whatever you want to say, and then one of us will read it. <clears throat> and, of course, we want to vet it a little bit first. You know, we're, we don't want just uh, anything out there. But, yeah, if we read it, they're going to have a real hard time tracing our voice back to whoever, whoever sent us the information. But, you know, also kind of going along the same lines here. And this guy... Uh, some gentleman wrote a guy named Joe, and he's kind of seen what I think a lot of people are starting to notice, and that is, you know, the door is being cracked open a little bit on the UAPs and the UFO subject, and it's just sort of just kind of a natural progression that this is going to be the next thing in line. So, and oddly enough, he he brought up something that I'd watched last month which was uh, Ohio's DNR, which is Department of Natural Resources. Um, <clears throat> he said, do we think that the states and provinces are slowly giving us sound bites? Um, I don't know if, if there's a, uh, if there's like a directed effort, you know, at, uh, at some level to do that. But to answer that question, well, certainly the Ohio DNR did. They did four one-hour segments on a Zoom call talk, talking about this very topic. And, <clears throat> you know, the state of Oregon, for example, a few years ago, they put out in the, uh, in the hunters, uh, you know, every year you have to buy your hunting regulations. And in the regulations, they specifically prohibited taking shots at a Bigfoot. And at a, they called it a Sasquatch. Um, so, you know, who knows, maybe the door is opening, but, um, you know, he said, in our opinion, he said, what's the real issue? Well, um, Creek Devil is a podcast and we're, we're private sector. We're, we're not even, you know, we're not even funded in that sense. So these are questions that maybe you should, if you really want to know, you could write your <laughs> local politicians. Because we're not on the payroll, and so we don't really have those answers. But very, very, very good question. Uh, he he said that. Um, okay, so real quick follow up. The science community, I'm not sure which one he's talking about, has admitted it appears there's seven hominid species that have already existed along along parallel to Homo sapiens. And so, Will, what's your overall take on why we're not? being told the truth. And I'm not sure what he means there because the academic community obviously does talk about hominids well, in the past. It, it, that's based on fossil finds. And and they they didn't they weren't I wouldn't say parallel, they they lived at the same time period that Homo sapiens 
was here, you know, our ancestors. So um, it's not some big secret that these are these finds are based on on fossil discoveries. And I want to talk about that for a second because I was looking at a, a documentary a while back, and they they highlighted one of the hominids, and the the skull was very very small, but they they stressed that this is not a child. This was an adult. And I mean, when I say small, I mean it was probably four inches across. You could hold it in one hand. <clears throat> but what really struck me was where the brain stem comes down. It's coming straight down vertically instead of out the back. It was bipedal. Yes, it was bipedal, probably intelligent, highly intelligent. Are you, Will, are you, because you've studied anthropology, are you aware of any other um, either fossils or skull fragments of non-homo sapiens that have the brain stem facing straight down? Uh, I don't recall off the top of my head, but they feel there were actually quite a number of, uh, you know, hominids or hominids, um, uh, anthropoids, I guess for lack of a better term, I'm, um, who were bipedal. So us being bipedal is not anything new. Okay. Um, and I guess the other question is, I don't know the answer to this, but Neanderthals, are there, do you know if there's any uh, complete skulls of a Neanderthal? They found quite a few remains of Neanderthals. I, I'm fairly certain they're complete skulls, or mostly complete anyway. Yeah. And they're interesting because the eye sockets are higher up on the forehead than ours. Yeah, the, the face was structured, the skull structured differently. Yeah. And brain, it would just about, be interesting. And the brains are about 200 cc's larger than ours. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so they may have perhaps been more intelligent than us. Hard telling. Right? We'll never know. <laughs> hey, something I wanted to mention, I, I sent you, I didn't send it to Brian, but I sent it to you. There was an article that someone sent to me this past week, and, and I can't remember how the, the entire thing went, but they were cases, current ones, of groups of chimps attacking and killing gorillas. And one of the things that really yes. struck me was uh, hear that. Yeah. where they observed a female chimp who not only killed a gorilla infant, but ate it. Yeah. Well, like you said, Will, I mean, they, they go after what's vulnerable. And that that was really fascinating uh, information that I heard, yeah. It was just interesting that they, they would attack another another primate, and especially, you know, one that's so much larger than they are. And that kind of goes to my, uh, like, what I've wondered before is that if there was a vulnerable member of one of these, and I, I'm not just saying, like, infant or uh, juvenile, but if one of these things were elderly and they figured out that, hey, this thing is not going to be useful to us in the future in terms of hunting and getting food, because that's the number one thing is, is getting food and being able to survive and move on. Would they actually turn on their members and do that? I mean, I don't know. We can only speculate, but it's kind of interesting thing to think about. You're talking about a Sasquatch. Yeah. 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 Who knows? <laughs> Tom, you got a question? 
we didn't lose oh, we didn't lose time did I we? do yeah oh, there he is technology schmechnology um, <laughs> no that's a that's actually a really good question Brian I have now this isn't from a listener this is actually will this is kind of a personal question that you know I you know I've kind of discussed in the past but I think it goes a long way to explaining the existence of these creatures and that has to do with the bedding area has has there been and i know that we had carol on about a year ago that she was on your team back in the old pcsit days yeah she was actually on our board of directors okay so you guys found an area where it almost certainly looked like these things had kind of bedded down for the night in the grass but are you aware of any other well um, they really weren't bedding they weren't bedding sites we heard them. We were out there one of those evenings. We heard them running. It sounded like a, a bunch of horses running across the open fields. And we think they were just kind of frolicking or doing whatever they were doing because it looked like, um, and, and I'm trying to remember if I put those pictures in my book, Haunted Valley. I think I did. Um, I thought I'd lost all the pictures, but those resurfaced. I can't remember they were stuck to something somewhere. But anyway, um, there were, I can't remember, maybe half a dozen spots where it looked like they had laid down and rolled around because they were, you know, anywhere from 15 feet across. We measured them, um, you know, up to, you know, 20, 25 feet. We were maybe, you know, two of the individuals did this in one spot where the grass, the field grass was completely flattened, um, you know, where it had not been the day before. And it was in the location where we heard all this running around. Well, can I ask you? So, a um, so do you think that they were there in that uh, like immediate time, or was that from like the night before, or what do you think? Well, no, it was it was from the night we were standing there listening to all this going on. Um, because what we do, we didn't shine lights or all this stuff out there. You know, we we let them do. <clears throat> excuse me. We let them do what they were going to do. We just observed, you know, through listening. Uh, <clears throat> we would, excuse me, geez, I'm a little congested. Um, we would go down through those fields, you know, during the daytime, make notes, you know, if any changes or disturbances. And then at night we would stay in, in the family's yard and we would observe through listening what was going on in that particular night. We heard what sounded like this running, and it came from the direction they were usually coming to that area from. Uh, and it sounded like a group. Of, it sounded like horses running. It was it was loud, and, and you could tell it was something. Not one thing. It was numerous of them running. And the next day, we went down to that area, and we found all these big flattened spots. This was uh, it was an unused hay field, is what it was. So the grass was tall. And, and these places were flattened down completely. Well, I'm kind of going, I was sort of going in a direction with this, with this question. And that is, I've had people contact me and say, well, they think these creatures, and, and I don't want to um, belittle anybody for, for their opinion, but they think, well, there's a possibility that the creatures are actually interdimensional. And so the first thought that, comes to my mind is okay great well if they're interdimensional then you know they they don't they wouldn't need to sleep here i suppose they could but you know they can just 
you know, phase in and phase out as, as they, you know, as they desire. But if they actually are a creature that lives, eats, and has to, you know, they're confined to the, by the same laws of physics that we're confined to, that everything on this planet is, you got to eat, you got to sleep, you got to, you know, get, get water and all that. Then if we could find bedding areas, would that, I, I would think that would kind of lay that to rest. No pun intended. Well, but. I mean, it's just, it's just one of many things. It's not, it wouldn't, that wouldn't be the sole thing that would lay it to rest. I mean, interdimensional, that's just ridiculous anyway. Um, there's, you know, people grasp at things with this subject because a lot of the physical evidence is so intangible and it's very right. hard to find it and it, it's time consuming. And a lot of people just don't want to spend the sheer amount of time. And I can tell you for every 100 ventures out someplace, and it could be days we're talking for one outing, um, you might make a hundred of those and never find anything. And then the one time you do find something might be some small piece of evidence. So um, it's not like you're going to go out and get a bonanza of evidence when you go out and look. So uh, that's that's what kind of it kind of messes with with a lot of people. So they come up with this stuff. Uh, there's plenty plenty of stuff that shows they're just like any other creature on the planet. You know that is so true. Uh, just speaking experientially from. From my own experience was going out that was you know we, we've talked about it i went out and we were 20 no more than 30 feet away from one but it was in a thicket area had no i had zero idea As a matter of fact it wasn't that i had zero ideas that i had absolute certainty that they were nowhere anywhere they were nowhere around and boom all of a sudden that that, that got turned on its head but I do want to argue with you, argue with you a little bit on no creature having interdimensional capabilities, because I've got a cat that can just vaporize and just disappear for hours at a time. Well, cats aren't <laughs> no they're not from it. here anyway, so <laughs> right. <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. Um, Craig, who has written us before, he's a, a biomedical engineer. It looks like. Um, he says, we've heard the story, and what we're st- again, we're, we're on the sleeping thing. Okay, we've heard the story after story of Sasquatch walking through and even sleeping in thick prickly briars, which would tear humans to shreds. So we've also heard stories of people shooting a Sasquatch, and it has minimal effect. Do we believe that Sasquatch has particularly thick skin, rigid or dense skin, um, further uh, further characteristic of any existing primate, for, for example, gorillas. Well, I know I can tell you from what I saw, the hair was very thick, and you're talking about a, a mass, a massive creature. You know, so you know people say, "Oh, yeah, I got this round. I'll go out and drop an elephant." Well, that's true, but um, are you out shooting a Sasquatch with it? Usually, somebody has a much smaller caliber rifle, like I did, for example. Um, and I can tell you, you know, from hunting elk and deer and, and bear, um, <laughs> I, I didn't own a gun that was big enough to take on that creature. Um, you know, I, I had a, it was a 300 Savage was the rifle I used to have and which is basically a 308 round. Um, but not, and I wouldn't have used my 12 gauge on that creature. It was so massive, but, 
Um, so a lot of times it's smaller round, or if it is hit, how do you know where it's hit? Um, you know, did the creature go off, you know, some distance and die? Nobody knows. Well, the other thing is we've talked about their, the bone and muscle density being exceedingly thick, right? More, much more dense than ours, uh, by, by many factors. And then, so, there's, and then there's stories like the Minnesota Iceman where, you know, he did kill it. Yeah. Well, he shot it in the eye. He did. And so I guess, I don't know how thick your brain has to be, but, you know, I don't think it can stop uh, even a 30-odd and, six. And those are much smaller creatures than what we have out here in the Northwest, too. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, well, and then you've made the point only a thousand times that, yeah, go ahead and shoot one. Let's say you kill it. What about the other five that are watching? Yeah, you got to make it out of their Good luck their with pals. That. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, so, so, uh, but that is an excellent question. That they they must have exceptionally thick skin, exceptionally thick uh, capabilities. You know, right. because well, here's the other thing. You hear. And again, these are anecdotal stories. So we, we don't have any hard evidence on those. But, for example, if they kidnap or capture somebody and they run through the brush, that person it gets torn to shreds. Presumably, the Bigfoot is not as affected by that. Well, again, you know, compare humans to, to a Sasquatch. And I, and I can only relate to what I saw. <clears throat> if, if I had hair that thick, I wouldn't worry about any kind of brush because it's not going to get to the skin. Whereas with us, oh really? Whereas with us, if we're not, you know, clothed fairly well, you know, for those conditions, we're going to get a lot of scrapes and cuts. Right, and then there's always the guy in front of you that runs or walks, and then the stick comes back and smacks you in the face. That's why you don't follow <laughs> anybody that closely. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but so you actually saw the hair on the creature. Oh yeah. And what you're saying is that hair was. It was very thick. thick. You could, you could perceive that. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. No, you. It's not like it's not hair like ours. It was very thick, and and it could those things could go through anything, and it wouldn't phase them, because it wouldn't reach to the skin. Okay. Wow. So I mean, it's almost like a clothing. I mean, yeah, I mean, devil's clubs and stuff like that just wouldn't wouldn't penetrate it. Okay. Hey, well, let, let me ask you. Have the descriptions changed over the last decades? And I'm not just talking about types, but just in general. Like, have the descriptions of the hair, no. the teeth, no. the they, they basically stay stay the same essentially? Yeah, I mean, with, with any same. living species, you're not what you what differences are going to be in, and people I think nowadays are probably talking about the various kinds that they're seeing. And those differences, but we're talking about, let's say, you know, here in the Northwest, for example, you know, like with the Patterson Sasquatch, um, the descriptions are always the same. And with a genuine, you know, living species of creature, those descriptions are going to be the same. If they varied a whole bunch, then there'd be a problem, but they don't. Right. And that is what makes the, the thing so consistent because the things don't change. I mean... The description in terms of science doesn't change. It's basically the same from from the 60s to the 70s. Actually, if you go back even further, I mean, hundreds of years ago. As far back as they go. 
yeah, as far as back as they go and, until today, about 2021. So, interesting. So, another question. Again, this is just kind of a, a personal thought. You know, the West right now is, and I don't, honestly, I don't know what kind of a history there is with uh, the fire danger and the, the wildland fires. Uh, they, you know, I've looked at back in, before there was a uh, fire service, wildland fire, uh, a way of dealing with forest fires. They just burned. You know, people complained about it back in the early 1900s, late 1800s. But what do you think could be <clears throat> sort of a consequence of that in regards to either thinning out the Bigfoot population or perhaps concentrating it into smaller areas for a period of time until that area bounces back. Well, the creatures have dealt with forest fires as long as they've been here. I mean, because that's just a, it's a natural part of what goes on with forests in, in the, these parts of the country. So, you know, they, they know how to deal with it. Um, you talk about now fires, you know, just burned. Well, they still just burn. You know, people think that they go out and fight fires. Well, they do, but they don't put them out. They just contain them and let the fuel burn out. Um, so the creatures... That's a good point. Yeah, the creatures, um, you know, they do what they do. I mean, they, like I said, they, they're well-versed in it, I'm sure, and know what to do when a fire happens. Right. Well, and that's, that's actually a good point. Uh, the, the fire crews don't put the fire out. It's not like putting out a structure fire. It's a very different strategy. Yeah, I, I fought forest fire one year, many years ago, and that's what they teach you in the fire academies. You just contain it. You don't, it, it's, uh, I mean, unless it's a, you know, you catch the fire when it first starts and it's only a couple acres in size, you might be able to get it under control with, you know, water trucks or something. But uh, when, when you see, you know, people say, oh, well, they drop retardant on it. That's what it is, retardant. That's to keep the fire from spreading. It's not to put it out. They don't drop it on the flames. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is in response to protecting property and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, you, you want to contain it as quickly as possible so it doesn't do more damage, and especially, to, especially to people's homes and things like that. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Okay. <clears throat> um well, so getting back to, again, it just kind of dovetails into that question. And, and I know I've heard you talk about this in the past. When you have an area that has forest fire, and then a year or two later, and for some time, maybe as much as a decade, decade and a half, there's all this leafy stuff. You get a whole new ecosystem that crops up, and that that prompts more wildlife and do you believe that that would create a maybe a growth in the Bigfoot population? Like ringing the dinner bell. You know, look, <laughs> look, look what happens to the deer population after, you know, a fire and an area start to regrow. I mean, it takes a long time for fir trees to grow, but the leafy plants and trees pop right up. Um, you know, actually, a forest fire is actually, it's a very good thing for those areas. Uh, because it, you know, kind of rejuvenates and you get a lot of new growth and things. So, you know, we see all over the place what it done to deer populations. You know, they've exploded. And, you know, any predators are, are going to, their populations are going to grow accordingly. You know, that's a really good point because I've seen in, in areas where you're like, God, this is just 
it's terrible because it's just a, a kind of a wasteland of dead and burned trees. And then you got that green leafy stuff coming up. But if you look carefully in between those dead trees, you can see a herd of elk moving through there. Substantial, substantially large herd. Right. And yeah, so they get not only food, but oddly enough, all those, even though they're dead trees, they get some concealment with that as well. Yeah, again, like most wildlife, they, you know, they're used to the fires and, and they kind of know how to work around them and take advantage of it. Brian, how about you? Any new questions? Uh, so, anyways, one of the conventions came here a few weeks ago, and I won't even mention the name of the place because it is kind of, a, you know, someone that we don't want to be associated with necessarily. But anyways, though, one of the big debates that came up was the argument whether Bigfoot and, you know, forget about all the four types, if you will, but between that and also the Florida skunk ape. And what some people were saying is that, oh, well, the Florida skunk ape is something totally different than Bigfoot. And I was just kind of curious as to what you think about that. Like, are the Florida one through, uh, like, are the one, two, three, four types and maybe five types, are they different than the Florida skunk ape? Or are they totally different species? Because that's what some people think. Well, the first question I'd have to ask is, how do they know they're not? You, you know what I mean? Um, they're they're one of the varieties, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you know, nothing, who, nothing mysterious there. And then some of the witnesses that came forward were saying that, like, oh, it was really skinny. It was tall, but it was skinny. Yeah, and that doesn't. Well, no, no. Fit. We we do remember when we had um, Tammy in Alabama on with her husband. Uh, they saw two different kinds on their property. One was very much like what you see in the Patterson film, and then there were two or three other individuals that came, you know, walking, apparently unaware of the first individual, um, and then uh, uh, the first individual member caught wind of them or saw them. And got kind of a disgusted look on his face, they said, as they were watching this. And then the other ones must have caught wind of the first one and made a hasty retreat. But <laughs> yeah, they were, exactly. But they were, they were built very thinly like that. Yeah, so that's a good point. I mean, so yes, a lot of times when... There are, yeah, there when are variations people, like that. Yeah, when people see big, but it's, it's not always the huge, like humongous types that you might think. But it's uh, it, it could still be thin and really, really tall, and that could be the same thing. The other thing that I found interesting is that when I read a lot of these reports, a lot of them say that they are kneeling when when cars or trucks like drive by, and as soon as they pass, they will stand up, meaning that they were kind of hiding mm -hmm. as you know, like you know. Uh, like um like trees almost and then as soon as the the cars or trucks pass by they stand up and that's when the people look in their the river muir and then they see and they say like oh my gosh that that was something unique i never saw that before mm -hmm. sure you know and we've heard that 
a lot. It's not just people driving by in cars, but people walking along. Um, <clears throat> well, what about the guy in Australia, Baz, we just talked to? He's driving along, and there's that tree stump. Except the tree stump had two very large eyes looking at him. You remember that? Well, what about the tree stump you saw? Right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so, and I, I think that's part of their strategy, and it's probably a very effective one, is to remain perfectly motionless. And then you're not going to, we're not going to, and Will, you've talked about this. We're trained to see motion, and we're actually trained to better see lateral movement than vertical or forward movement. Yeah, I mean, I, I go back to my military training as a cavalry scout. You know, when you're doing reconnaissance, you know, the last thing you want to do is a whole bunch of movement. You know, if some if you happen to be, you know, if you're exposed, uh, you stay motionless because chances are, are with you that you might not be seen. You know, well, can I ask you a follow-up question to that? So if one of these creatures sees you or a family of creatures sees you, and they see you passing them. Like, if you're in a car, okay, yeah, they're never going to catch you, blah, blah, blah. But if you are, like, in a car or, or trailer, camper, and then you're going into, like, kind of a campground. You're a lunch. Are they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah. But are, are they going to maybe follow you and, like, look at you and stare at you and, and figure out if there's anything going on? Or, like, what do you think it's about hard that? hard telling. Hard telling. They might be just passing through an area when you go by them. It's, you know, who knows. Or if you're going to a you know, campsite, one... maybe they're looking for, you know, easy handouts or something. I don't know. And we've talked about that in the past where they – we're probably under observation far, far, far more often than we're aware of. They know we're there. Oh, uh, yeah. We just don't necessarily know they're there. Right. And I've, you know, got quite a few reports like that where actually there was a third party that actually saw the creature watching other people. And it was unaware of the, the third party watching it. Well, there was that guy up in Washington he was a kid. He's like 16. He didn't know they were there. And then he's walking along and all of a sudden he walks through and there's one of them looking at him standing next to a maple tree. Mm -hmm. And then another one walked by him. You know that kid, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of messing with you. But it's it's true. That kid I mean, ran like hell. had not a clue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so did the dog. That's right. No sack lunch there. <laughs> you know, hey, hey, well, kind of a kind of a follow up to that is that how brazen do you think that these creatures are at this point? I mean, it used to be kind of like, oh, well, they're scared; they just want to run away. But at this point, it seems like there are so many encounters and so many different sightings that it's almost like, hey, they want you to say that, hey, this is my territory; get the f out. I, and, I don't think they were like, ever scared and just ran away. There's there's always a motive to what they're doing. And just because we perceive it a certain way doesn't mean that that's what it was. Well, that's a good point. You know, when you go back into history, again, I you know, I, we go back to that quite often, but the encounters and the behavior of these things, it's 
eerily consistent. It's consistent. Historical yes. records, yeah, absolutely. And then that's what I enjoyed so much about uh, Daryl and Annie and and Baz from Australia. Absolute consistency mm-hmm. in behavior. And very similar to the creatures here. Yes. And ill-tempered like the ones we have here. Pretty much, yep. I mean, do you think that the temper, temperament of all these creatures are the same depending on, uh, like, they're all across the board, they're that frustrated and that uh, aggressive, or, you know, does it change from from a GR? Well, I, I think it depends on the disposition of a group yeah. and the age yeah, of I'm, the members and their experiences eight. and things like that. Do you think that there are certain parts in the country where there are older members compared to maybe younger members, or does that not even matter at all? Do you think? Well, I'm sure. I'm sure the older Sasquatches, you know, they, they probably retired to Florida, but. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm joking. Again. <laughs> no, I, I don't think it's no. It's nothing like that. It's they're going to be their smaller groups, and you know, as they're members of various ages, and probably just like uh, um, you know, ancient humans were. Yeah, you know what's funny, and this is a question to both Tom and you. Um, you know, a friend of mine was was saying like, oh well. You know, if if uh, a Sasquatch body gets found tomorrow, well, guess what? This this show is going to be over, and you're not going to be able to talk about anything and blah blah blah. I, I actually think the opposite. I think that more people will be more interested in the subject and be more interested in all these people's encounters and everything that happened. And um, and uh, like like just out of curiosity, Tom and Will, like, what do you guys think about that? I'm going to jump in first, if that's okay, Will. Sure. Um, that is a really good point, Brian, because if you look at it almost as, you know, I hate to say it, it's almost like a marketing thing. There, there's a 30%, statistically, 30, roughly 30% of Americans believe in this thing. 70% don't, but all, if all of a sudden it, boom, pops up and, hey, now it's a known thing. You now have an untapped market of 70%, the rest of America, who are probably going to have some interest and some curiosity about this. You know, Absolutely. I would say similar to, to the UAPs and the UFOs. Uh, what I found interesting about those, just I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but was the fact that there's still a group, some holdouts that are like trying to explain them away. Um, great, and that's fine, but... I wonder how that would affect us if uh, once once the creature. I think there would be a substantial tsunami of interest. Or it might be time to retire to Florida. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. What's weather like down there, Brian? <laughs> well, it's hot right now, but uh, <laughs> but it's good throughout the rest of the year, I'll tell you that. <laughs> With the AC and everything. So. Right. Well, and that's another thing, um, just going off on, you know, kind of conjecture or speculation, you know, when it gets hot, for example, it's going to get up in triple digits 
tomorrow here. And up in the mountains, it's probably going to be, you know, well over 100 degrees. But these creatures, they're well adept at surviving in cold weather, super cold weather, exceedingly cold. It's just, I've always found it curious, how can they also adapt to exceedingly hot weather? Well, you think, I don't know if we have an answer, well, but it's just interesting. you got to think about the air in those areas, okay, mountainous areas. Air is not the same temperature from, let's say, you know, down in the bottom of a valley as it is up on a ridgetop. What, what, how you, why you feel the heat is because the air is heated. So when there's thicker air, it's hotter. So you go up where it's thinner, and it's it may not be a huge amount cooler, but it is cooler. That's a good point, yeah. And obviously, the higher elevation you get, of course, the, the, uh, air, yeah, the air gets thinner. air's thinner, and it's going to be cooler. Well, yeah, and um, they also remain, they probably just, you know, are, are kind of inactive during the daytime. And, yeah. And and you got a lot of shade and things like that, so there's there's ways of coping with it. But yes, well, let me ask. Oh, I was just going to say there, but yes, they are more active at night. Yeah, they're more active at night for sure. Yeah. Uh, in general, do you think they're becoming more brazen when it comes to contact with humans? Meaning, what I mean by that is that in the uh, previous maybe five ten years they were kind of scared to come across humans and so forth and nowadays maybe they're more i, I don't want to say aggressive well, i wouldn't say just, i wouldn't say scared probably more just more wary because like i've said before you know up until the 80s we used to go out and shoot at everything you know we were the ones that were very brazen right. now our behaviors changed so theirs is reversing that you know what i mean Right. They're more confident yeah. to go do things because they're not seeing us do the things that we used to do. Right, right. Now, I mean, is there... That doesn't mean they're friendly for... encounters either. <laughs> yeah. So anybody out there listening thinking, oh, because we don't kill them, we don't kill things out there anymore, the Sasquatch is going to be our pals. You're going to be a sack lunch. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, I think that it's pretty safe to say that if you're safe, and you are like um, intelligent. You are definitely o- okay to go ahead and um, and go ahead and camp as long as you are are aware of all the circumstances. Well, and that, I'm that sure it goes that, for any wildlife. I mean, because there's a lot more yeah. big cats and stuff like that around yeah. there, and they're definitely more brazen, um, and there are more attacks on humans now than there ever were before. So. And just, you know, we've talked about this before, just little things, you know, first aid wise, things like that. I mean, and it doesn't mean, yeah, and I know. was joking before, it doesn't mean you're going to be a sack lunch, you know, but I'm just kidding. But um, like with any, like I said, with any animal, you just want to be safe out there. Yeah. I mean, hey, listen, I've been in, in uh, going to a restaurant in Michigan and there are coyotes or what, well, I call coyotes, but you guys call coyotes. And, and they were right there, and you know, there there was no harm at all. They were just kind of running through, but um, oh, yeah. yeah, you always have to be, you, you always have to be careful. Yeah, you do. That, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Only I mean, you, you know, you, you, oh, go ahead, Tom. No, I was just going to comment talking about mountain lions. I've been to 
wilderness countless times. There's areas that I go to that I never go to without seeing their scat and their footprints that are recent, you know, very fresh. I have yet to see a mountain lion in the wild. Never seen them. They're cats. They're very stealthy, very quiet. And I actually concerned, I'm, I'm a bit more concerned about them than just about anything else. You know, the only time I've ever seen cougar this. in the wild is spotlighting at night. Never in the daytime. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, very interesting. It's, it, I got a friend of mine, he was, uh, it's okay to kind of go off on a little sidetrack here talking about mountain lions. Sure. Uh, um, he was, uh, oh, he was living in an apartment complex that I did many, many, many years ago. First, first time I'd heard of the Navy SEALs. He was, he was a Navy SEAL in Vietnam. But he was talking about him and a buddy has went out to Central Oregon, where it's it's just desert, or I should say Eastern Oregon, and there was one tree for miles around. So they're okay, we'll get under that tree and they camp. They spent the whole day. They never left the area. You know, had dinner, going to, and his buddy had, and they were just sleeping under the stars. They didn't even have a, a tent. And he's looking up and he's just looking at the stars. And you know, it's it's kind of neat. You get the silhouette of the pine tree. And there's a pair of red stars up in the tree. One star goes out, comes back on, and the other one goes, <laughs> it, it was a mountain lion staring at him up in the tree the whole day. It never moved. That's what they get for finding the only tree in the area. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I was going to say food for thought, but... You know, you food know, for the cat. Figuratively. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, don't go out and present yourself as a happy meal. <laughs> <laughs> okay so well i i have a question uh, um because just out of curiosity like like when you find footprints or when you get cats uh do you accept them from other people or because i i know i know it, <laughs> i know exactly how you might feel like well if i accept some somebody from somebody else i don't know if they're real i have to examine the context and i have to go out and examine them um, do you accept cats from other people? Oh, if sure. They describe oh, yeah. Context from oh, yeah. I've, I've, or, I've, like, I've had people send me footprint casts. Okay. Okay. So, so, like, like what I was getting at is that, like, like in your office or in your storage, like, are most of the cats are are they from you or are they from other people or because um, I know that you vet them, of course. I, I have. <laughs> it's just a mixture. I don't even know what all is from where. <laughs> yeah and if you have yeah, and if you're no, willing to share copies of cast i i'd love to have copies of cast yeah and you have our like our address at uh creekdevil.com and um i mean are there any casts that you get that are, you, you say like oh my gosh i this could be real but i'm sorry i can't accept it because i don't know i can't verify it no for, i mean for, the, the ones that people have sent me are, are actually very good so yeah, by all means. I mean, if you if you're like I said, folks, if you're if you've cast something and you're willing to make a copy and send it to me, I'd love to have it. So, um, but yeah, I, everybody that sent me things look all looked legitimate. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, yes, I'm and, I'm not there. I haven't done you know the work with them in the area, but I can compare it to other prints and they look pretty good. So, yeah, 
And the, the key thing is that you can compare them to like what you've already seen. Oh, sure. That's the most important. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and also, do you get um, like a bunch of prints that are like multiple, or do you get just like one that gets set in the mail? Uh, usually, just one. Okay, but you can go ahead and verify it. Uh, I usually talk to the person. They they tell me, you know, the information surrounding, you know, them finding it and everything. Yeah, that that's so important though because so many people that are engaged in like all these subjects, not just like our subject, but all these other things out there, they just go and they just accept everything. And like you said, the most important thing is context. You have to examine the, like the most important context and to see like, Hey, what was involved and what was the situation and so forth. So that, that's why you are the, the, (laughs) the greatest, like researcher uh, in this area so <laughs> well, it just it's just experience and a lot of thinking about it like for all use tom if it's okay tom use your uh as an example um and i can't I'm trying to remember which incident it was because you had quite a few things where you had a find and you came back and i said well did you see any prints mm-hmm. and go back and look at the ground right <laughs> yeah no that was i was just thinking of that one as a matter of fact and actually, to to bring that up in this discussion, and that is, a lot of times when, here's the deal, I've I have seen far more casts, not casts, could be prints, than I've been able to cast. Number one, I don't carry, um, and maybe I should, you know, but I don't carry the um, plaster of Paris or any other kind of material with me and some water that I'm going to cast, just because it takes a long, long time for it to cure and. Then you got to go back and you got to go get it. Uh, and I haven't seen any that were really stunning. Like if there was some in maybe silt or mud, we just had this. There are some phenomenal footprints out there. I'm like that too. I, okay, I'm picky yeah. about what I cast. I mean, I've cast some pretty ugly ones in the past, but then I'll think later, geez, right. why, did I, why did I go through all the effort to do that? Well, and I'll, but I will take pictures of them, you know, and you, want, you always want to have a tape measure. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, you will see, and Will, you've seen them, a lot of the footprints that you see, you know, because of the context, you, I, there you go. There's, I found some last year with a buddy of mine, 16-inch footprints, and they're in some very rocky soil, very gravelly, rocky soil, but it was undeniable. It was a whole series of them. Well, the human eye, you have two eyeballs, so you're going to see it in stereo. If you take a picture of it, camera's got one eyeball. That's the bane of the existence of cameras with, with this topic. I, I'll make a point too. One of the one of the recent ones you found was a five inch print, and I think there was six. There was a, a sixteen inch track, and another one wasn't there. Were three sets. Yes. Yep. Okay. That was just last week. Yeah. So people might look at the picture and say, "Oh, that's a bear track." Fair enough. Where are all the other bear tracks in that line? Okay, you're not just exactly going to find, right. especially in, in material that's exactly. made a good, really good impression. Folks, bear tracks are not a whole big distance apart from one another. They're only a couple of feet apart, and you get a whole bunch of them in a line of tracks. You can't mistake a line of bear tracks for anything else. 
and people might you know what was interesting oh i was just say if people might argue that point you know but go out and look at a line of bear tracks right exactly uh, they're they're totally different um and you know you talk about context well the context of the area where that little one was taken you know we, we found we found several footprints in that area within i don't know if you're the circumference of maybe several miles didn't you tell me you found 15 of, prints in that general spot yes yes of all different sizes yeah. now here's the thing that's interesting part of the reason of going up there was I, I put a recorder up there and while i'm attaching it to the tree and i'm not you know i, I don't know if they're watching us or what i have no idea but I'm attaching it, and and you have to have the recorder on, so it's picking up me. You hear all, all the rustling sounds, but in between the rustling sounds, absolutely crystal clear, you can hear a scream. Um, you know, and I didn't hear it at the time. And then there was another scream, but in that exact same area, it was a kind of a marshy meadow. Um, the buddy and I that were there doing that. Earlier, we had been out in the meadow, and I heard a scream here and one over there. And I looked at the guy, and I'm like, I need verification. I mouthed to him, did you hear that? And his eyes are as big as saucers, and he's, yes, I heard that. All right. Well, we're on high alert. That scream that we heard in the meadow is precisely the same scream that the microphone picked up while I was attaching it to the tree. So I don't know if I was just, uh, you know, fixated on getting it all set up and I just didn't probably didn't pay attention and didn't hear it. Yeah. It's easy enough to get, you know, kind of a narrow focus on what you're doing, especially if you're talking to somebody else hey. and making noise. Hey, hey, Tom, let me ask how, how high was the mic? It was at ground level. It was three feet. It was. It was. It was not high at all. I. You know. And that's a good point, Brian. Because, Will, I mentioned this to you when I was thinking about doing this. I was like, Yeah, I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to stick it up high where they can't find it, except where I, what I think is high is right about eyeball level for these things. I scratch that idea. <laughs> um. So, yeah, it's a long-winded way of saying I just, it was, honestly, it was like three feet off the ground on a very large, uh, like a secondary growth uh, dug fir tree. Tom, let me ask you, if, do you think it, it would make a difference if it were a little bit lower or higher? Or would, would, it, would it be the same, in other words? Um, yeah, that's a good point. I don't think it makes a difference. I mean, here's the thing. The mic, the digital DVR, digital voice recorder that I picked was one that I picked up yeah. for 17 bucks. It <laughs> yeah. was a cheapie. Yeah. Um, and I just wrapped wire around it. I got, you know, some baling wire and, and duct tape. And I will say this, the duct tape, uh, you got to understand that uh, not all duct tape is created equal. I use Gorilla Tape. Um, it's, it's very stout. But anyway, I, I use duct tape and baling yeah. wire and attached it to the tree and i got 22 hours of audio i have yet to go through every bit of it but uh i sent will some of the segments 
there's some really strange. Uh, there's one. Well, you remember that grunt? Yeah, Just there's some strange noises on there. Yeah, something went, oh. And I just got to tell you, this is an area that is so remote. Um, still, it, it's very interesting. And there's plenty plenty of Sasquatch evidence there. Yeah. Yes, yes. Oh, so hey. next time we go up, uh, bring some mustard and some mayonnaise for them. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget the bread, Tom. Yeah. Don't forget the bread. <laughs> Hey, hey, Tom. Do uh, like, do you know what time of the morning uh, that grunt was? Or, I mean, do you, do you know have, if you have like kind of video confirmation um, of that uh, grunt? Or uh, that was- no, I don't. I, I mean, it was okay. So, well, actually, no, that's not true because I took a picture of the tree, several pictures, so that I would be sure and get back to the same tree. Right, because all the trees look alike, and you know. So anyway, I took a picture of it. So the the microphone was attached. The tree was st- photographed at 3:46 in the afternoon. Fellas, we're down to the last couple of minutes. Uh, do we have any final questions or thoughts or anything? Well, okay. I just I just want to say, like, hey, thank t- thank Tom for everything that he's doing right now. I mean, that that's so awesome. So, um, yeah, definitely take time. Well, it's, it's fun. And I got to tell you, um, I would not have had this knowledge or skill, uh, a foundation of that without, without Will's help. I mean, it's, Will, it really goes back to that very first piece of evidence Amen. I found. You're like, Tom, you need to go back and look at the ground around that stump. <laughs> There's a brilliant idea. <laughs> You know, it's funny. On the ground. As, you mean like something would walk around there? It's funny. People, they just, um, they're so caught up maybe, you know, the situation that's going on. And, and they don't think to look for what we would think is obvious things. And, and it's Yeah, just, that's exactly true. It's just what people do. Yeah, yeah. Well, fellas, any, any final thoughts or is, is that it? Well, I think well, that's it for me. Yeah, just just thank everybody for listening, and we we definitely appreciate you. So just keep listening, and we'll definitely keep giving you all these great shows. So thank you I, so much. Anna. Yeah, and I just want to add, uh, thank you again for the questions. And the easiest way to get your questions answered, we do look at the comments, and oftentimes we'll pick questions out of there. But really, the best way is email. And our email address is questions, plural, questions at creekdevil.com. You can send us comments, you can send us questions, and you can send us your experience, your encounters, uh, all that stuff. So questions at creekdevil.com. And while you're at it, if you're on our YouTube channel, uh, it really helps us out a bunch to click the like button. And if you haven't subscribed, smash the subscribe button. We'd love to love to have you as a new subscriber. Something we were talking about doing too, a lot of people have asked about when we used to do the Blab shows, the, the, the live things we did. And they were a lot of fun. Of course, Blab, I don't think is around anymore, but um, there are some different platforms. We're talking about doing, on occasion, you know, a live Q&A so that we can 
uh, interact with the audience and, and answer questions right on the spot. So I've always enjoyed doing those. So that's something that we are planning on doing here uh, as soon as we can kind of get ourselves set up to do that. All right, fellas, everyone, great questions. We give a shout out to our friends in Australia. Um, we love talking to you folks. You know, if there's anybody else out there who would like to, you know, come on the show and chat with us, we'd love to hear from you. And anywhere for that matter, not just Australia, but um, anywhere, of course, here in North America and in Europe also. So, um, all right, everyone, well, stay tuned for the next segment. We'll be right back. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevening and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The name of this story, Two Tales of the Yeho. Curious legend of the Kentucky mountains, four or five versions of this curious and strange legend, come into my collection over a period of about six years, 1948 to 1954, from an isolated region of the Kentucky mountains. At first, I did not know what to make of it, but having also collected a few versions of The Bear's Son, story minus the half-bear, half-man introduction, I guessed that this was the introduction now broken away and told separately. It now appears to be a distinct legend, since Dr. Archer Taylor refers me to the long search for American versions by Mr. Rudolph Atrachi. And now that I reflect on this item, I realize that... And now that I reflect on this item, I realize that it is not unique to Kentucky Mountain folklore. During my youth in these mountains, it was not unusual to hear a rumor of some half-wild man, naked and hairy, being found in the woods, living close to animal state. This kind of Romulus Remus legend seems to stick in the minds of the folk, but how this particular legend made its way into eastern Kentucky is a mystery to me. The following version was taken down in pencil in 1950 from the lips of Lee Maggard, who lived in a small cabin on the south slope of the Pine Mountain Range near the small lumber town of Putney, Harlan County, Kentucky. He had heard it on Maggard's Branch, Leslie County, Kentucky. The Yeho Once there was man out hunting, he got lost, and after a while, he began to get hungry. He came to a big hole in the ground, and he thought he would venture down into it. He went down in there, and he found that the old Yeho lived in there, there was deer meat hanging up and other food piled around the walls. The man was afraid at first, but Yeho didn't bother him, and he went toward that meat to get him some. The Yeho walked over and looked at the knife and said, Yeho, Yeho, a time or two. He cut it off a piece of the meat, and he started eating it. Well, the man stepped over to the middle of the pit, and took out his flint and built him up a fire. And the Yeho watched him and looked at the fire, 
and at the flint, and said, Yeho, yeho, again. The man put his meat on a stick, and briled him a nice piece, and started eating it. The yeho watched him, and acted like he wanted a piece. The man cut it off a piece of the briled meat, and reached it over. And the yeho commenced to eating it up, and smacking its lips, and saying, mm, Yeho, yeho. Well, the man lived there with it a long time, and they got along all right. After so long, there was a young'un born to him, and it was half man and half yeho. And the yeho took such a liking to the man, it wouldn't let him leave. He got to wanting to get away and go back home. One day he slipped off, and the yeho followed him and made him go back. Went on that way for a good while, but he picked him a good time and slipped away. This time he got to the shore where there was a ship ready to sail. He got on the ship, and he looked, and he saw the yeho coming with a young'un. It screamed and hollered for him to come back, and when it saw he wasn't going to come, why, it just tore the baby in two and held it out one half to him and said, Yeho, yeho! He sailed on off and left it standing there. The version that Dr. Taylor refers to in my book, South from Hell for Sartan, is called The Origin of Man. Another version was given to me by this teller's grandson. It has the same title and contents, except that the Yeho has six children and tears them all in two and throws them after the embarked man. Another text, similar to the one given above, was accidentally erased from my tapes. The following text was recorded from Joe Couch, Appalachia, Virginia, in 1954. He had heard it from his people while he lived in Perry County, Kentucky. The Hairy Woman One time I was prowling in the wilderness, wandering about, kindly got lost, and so weak and hungry I couldn't go. When it began to get cool, I found a big cave and crawled back in there to get warm. Crawled back in and come upon a leaf bed, and I dozed off to sleep. I heard an awful racket coming into that cave, and something come in and crawled right over me and laid down like a big old bear. It was a hairy thing, and when it laid down, it went chomp, chomp, a chawing on something. I thought to myself, I'll see what it is and find out what it's eaten. I reached over, and a hairy-like woman was there eating chestnuts. Had about a half a bushel there. I got me a big handful of them and went to chewing on them, too. Well, in a few minutes, she handed me over another big handful, and I eat chestnuts until I was kindly full and wasn't hungry any more. Directly she got up and took off and out of sight. Well, I stayed on there till next morning, and she'd come in with a young deer. Brought it in, and with her big long fingernails she ripped its hide and skinned it, and then she sliced the good lean meat and handed me a bite to eat. I kindly slipped it behind me, afraid to eat it raw and afraid not to eat it, being she give it to me, She'd cut off big pieces of deer meat and eat it raw. Well, I laid back, 
and the other pieces she give me over as she eaten hers, she was going to see that I didn't starve. When she got gone again, I built up a little fire and briled my meat. After being hungry for two or three days, it was good cooked. Yes, buddy. She come in while I had a fire. She come in while I had my fire built, briling my meat, and she run right into that fire. She couldn't understand because it kindly burned her a little. She jumped back and looked at me like she was going to run through me. <laughs> I said, uh-oh, I'm going to get in trouble now. Well, it was cold and bad out, so I just stayed another night with her. She was a woman, but was right hairy all over. After several days, I learned her how to brile meat and that fire would burn her. She got shy at the fire and got so she liked briled meat and wouldn't eat it raw anymore. We went on through the winter that way. She would go out carrying deer and bear. So I lived there about two years, and when we had a little kid, one side of it was hairy and the other side was slick. I took a notion I'd leave there and go back home. I began to build me a boat to go away across the lake in. One time after I had left, I took a notion I'd slip back and see what she was doing. I went out to the edge of the cliff and looked down into the mountain, and it looked like two or three dozen of hairy people coming up the hill. They were all pressing her, and she would push them back. They wanted to come on up and come in. I was scared to death, afraid they was going to kill me. She made them go back and wouldn't let them come up and interfere. Well, I took a notion to leave one day when my boat was ready. I told her one day I was going to leave. She followed me down to my boat and watched me get ready to go away. She was crying, wanting me to stay. I said, no, I'm tired of the jungles. I'm going back to civilization again, going back. When she knowed she wasn't going to keep me there, she just grabbed the little one and tore it right open with her nails, throwed me the hairy part, and she kept the slick side. That's the end of that story. This is the end of the story. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This interview is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. On October 20th, 1967, at a place known as Bluff Creek, California, two men captured on film a creature that has been the source of much controversy ever since. There have been many theories and claims regarding this film, some supportive and some claiming hoax. The following interview by John Green of Bob Gimlin on videotape at Gimlin's home in Yakima, Washington in 1992 recounts events in Gimlin's own words. Green. This is John Green talking to Bob Gimlin in his home in Yakima, Washington. This is with regard to the movie that Bob and his friend Roger Patterson made 25 years ago in Northern California, Bluff Creek area. But we'll start a little further back than that. Now, you've known Roger for a long time, haven't you? Gimlin. Yes, I knew Roger in the early 1960s, 
I met Roger about 1958-59. Green. So that was before he got interested in Bigfoot? Gimlin. Yes, I can't recall just exactly when he did start talking to me about Bigfoot, but it was probably in the early 1960s. Green. Did you go out with him at all, looking into this? Gimlin. Yes, Roger and I had gone out many times in different areas and over in the Mount St. Helens area and actually up in this area here because there was a fellow who said he sighted one right up here at Cowich Canyon, which is about 20 miles from here. I went up there with Roger on that investigation. Of course, we covered as many of them as we could when they'd call or somebody would give us a report on something that's happening in the area. Roger and I rode horseback in the mountains quite a bit because I was training the horses at the time. Of course, I rode a lot in the mountains, and Roger would go along with me, and he'd play tapes and talk to me about the creature. I was a skeptic in those days. I trusted Roger's thoughts and his knowledge, but I wasn't really convinced that they existed. Green. How did you come to take this particular trip to California? Gimlin. Well, Roger and I had been over in the Mount St. Helens, riding the roads, and just more or less going by the lava rock caves and things when we came back from here. Well, let's go back a little here. It started raining real heavy over there, and uh, this was in the last part of August and the first part of September. When we got back to the Yakima area, somebody in California had phoned Roger's wife and left a message that there had been tracks sighted on the new roads that they'd been pushing back into the Bluff Creek area and that they were building logging roads into. So that was the reason that we went into that area. Green. Did Roger usually carry a movie camera with him? Gimlin. Yes, most of the time he had a camera that I can recall. I wasn't much on cameras, but Roger did have a camera, and prior to that he had been working with a guy up in this area here that that's, well, when he bought the camera. I knew he had that camera. He usually kept it in his saddlebags on his horse. Green. Well, when you went to California, did you have some definite time you were going to spend there? Gimlin. Yes. Well, we didn't know exactly, because I was working construction at that time, and I was in between jobs, so I said, yes, I can take off and go down there. I cannot recall the exact amount of time I was going to stay down there with him, but we stayed longer than I planned on staying. In fact, we stayed a week longer than I planned. Green. How long were you there? Gimlin. Well, I think we were down there, California, a total of three weeks. Green. And what were you traveling with? Gimlin. I had a one-ton truck with a horse van on it to haul the animals and all of our equipment. Of course, we took all of our supplies to stay as long as we need to stay, you know, the hay, the grain, our own food, because once we got in there, we never went into town. Green. How many horses did you have? Gimlin. We had three horses, two saddle horses and a pack horse. I had a saddle horse, and Roger had a saddle horse, and of course we had a small pack horse along. Green. What was Alda Atley's role in all this? Gimlin. Well, 
Alda Atley was Roger Patterson's brother-in-law, and he backed Roger financially with whatever expenses it took to go to these places. He was supposed to help me on some of the expenses, which I never did receive. Green, so you provided the truck and uh, Gimlin. Yeah, and the fuel, and my own horse, and my own food. The agreement when we left on any of those investigations was that whatever Roger spent, that we would split up on the expenses and with me, but Alda Atley was backing Roger because Roger didn't have a job at that particular time. Green. So, in fact, he only financed Roger. He didn't finance your share at all? Gimlin. No, he didn't finance my part of the trip at all. I had my own horse, my own equipment, and my own food. Well, I didn't expect somebody else to support me on that. It would have been nice if I could have gotten part of the fuel and expenses on the truck. Green. So you went into an area where you heard the tracks had been seen fairly recently? Gimlin. Yes, just prior to the time we had gotten there, they had sighted tracks on that Tuesday after being off over the Labor Day weekend. It had also started raining all up and down the west coast. By the time we got down there, these tracks supposedly were three different sizes, and they were just, well, globs in the mud as far as I was concerned. We couldn't get any plaster cast definition of them at all. Green. I never realized that you went down there for that specific set of tracks. Gimlin. Yes, that's the reason we went into that area. I wasn't real anxious to go down there because, well, I needed to go back to work. But Roger kept saying these guys were pretty good down in that area. I can't remember the fellow's name that, uh, that called up here. Green. Probably Al Hogson? Gimlin. Yeah, that was a, that was it. It's uh, Al Hogson. But there was somebody else who had called Roger, too. A guy that worked for the Forest Service. Green. Sil McCoy, maybe? Gimlin. Yes, I think that was his name. Yeah, McCoy. Something like that. Of course, it took me a while around here to get things ready so my wife could do my chores because I had animals at that time. And to be able to feed them and take care of them to be gone that long, why, I had to make provisions for her to take care of the animals. Green. That was interesting because, uh, well, I was there. I saw those tracks that you're referring to. When I was there, Al Hoxson told me that he was expecting Roger. Well, maybe he'd called him already by then. Gimlin. Yeah, may have. Green. I took that to mean that Roger already had a trip there planned before that. Gimlin. Uh-huh. Well, I don't recall whether he had a trip planned prior to the call or not. In fact, I don't think he did. Like I said, we'd been in the Mount St. Helens area, and when I came back here, I was going to go back to work in two weeks. And then I talked to him, Roger, again. We said that we were kind of in between jobs, so we can take a couple weeks off. And that's mainly the reason I went down, and Roger went with me, because, well, it was my equipment. Green. So what did you do when you got there? Gimlin. Well... First, we set up camp, of course. Then the way we do is just ride the roads. When these guys were working on the roads with bulldozers and everything, as quick as they'd quit working, we'd ride up and down in that area and search for tracks or 
whatever we'd run into. Then we would take the one-ton pickup truck and when the equipment's off the road, so we'd drive the roads. We would drive the roads at night real slow, looking for tracks crossing the road. Of course, in the daytime, we couldn't drive on the roads because, well, they were working on the roads up in there. They had started logging in some areas, and the logging trucks had started coming down from there. We covered as many miles as we could with the amount of time that we had. We could only go out so far, and we had to go back to camp. I mean, we did ride back to camp and use the truck to drive the roads at night. Green, what happened on this particular day? Gimlin, the day we got the film footage, I left early in the morning and Roger slept in. I just rode out and around. I always got up early, and so I rode on out. My horse loosened a shoe, and I came back in to tack the shoe on tighter. About ten o'clock, mid-morning or so, I sat around there for a little while because Roger was gone when I got back. Supposedly, he had gone down the creek there, uh, Bluff Creek there, and after a while, he came back and asked what area I had covered that morning. I told him, and he says, well, why don't we ride up into this area we had ridden into before, a desolate type area down a couple canyons. There's a creek running through it. So we went ahead and fixed lunch, and he said, well, let's get our gear together so when we ride out, we can stay if we have to, and stay a little bit later into the night if we need to. Well, we packed up the pack horse, and it was about midday, perhaps a little bit afternoon time, when we went around this bend in the creek bed. There was a fallen tree, and as we came around it, there was this creature standing by the creek. That's when everything started happening. The horses started jumping around, raising the devil and spooked from this creature. Well, Roger, well, his horse was rearing up and jumping round. He slid off him, got his camera out in the saddlebag, and uh, he started trying to get pictures of this creature as it was walking away. The film footage that you see, the Patterson film, is what was acquired from that particular sighting in the few seconds that we had to take pictures with. And then Roger ran out of film in the camera. The reason for him running out of film was as we were riding up there, we just took our time and fooled around. It was in the fall of the year. The maple trees were turning red, and it was kind of pretty, and Roger was taking pictures of me riding up the canyons, pictures of the trees, and photographing the surrounding areas. So when this all happened, we didn't have much film left in the camera, unfortunately. Some of us kind of blurry because he was running across a creek to get a better view, a closer view of the creature in a better way and get more pictures of it. When he did run out of film, well, naturally it was one of those old cameras that he had to get under a poncho to change the film. We went to catch his horse and the pack horse because I kept my horse under control. I had my horse with me all the time, so we caught his horse, got the new film out of the saddlebags, he got under his old poncho and changed the film around. Then we tried to track the creature on up from where we'd just seen it. He didn't have much luck doing it. Then we decided it was getting late in the afternoon. In that area, that time of year, the sun goes down about 3.30 or 4 o'clock. We wanted to get back and take plaster casts of the tracks and then go on into town to see if we had anything on film. We weren't sure from Roger stumbling and falling on the sandbar and getting up and running. 
We didn't even have an idea that we had anything on film at that time. In fact, it was doubtful that we did have anything. Green. So you cast the tracks the same day? Gimlin. Yes, we did. In fact, right that afternoon. By the time we got the tracks cast and the different deals that we did to cast the tracks done, well, it was getting late. It was almost dark by the time we got back to the truck and got the horses fed and tied up. By the time we got into town at Al Hogson's store, it was good and dark. I imagine it was oh, about 8.30, 9 o'clock. Then we went on over to oh, whatever town that was to mail the film up to Al Diatley, Roger's brother-in-law, so he could take it and get it developed to see if there was really anything on the film. Okay, I'll uh, go back a little bit to the casting of the tracks. I rode the big horse. The horse that I was riding was around 12, 1,300 pounds. I rode him alongside the tracks with this new film in the camera. Roger took pictures of how deep the horse's prints were in the soil compared to the creature's tracks. Then I got up on a stump, which was approximately three to four feet, you know. We didn't measure it. Probably should have. Anyway, I jumped off with a high-heeled boot as close to the track as we could. Then we took pictures of that to illustrate the depth that my footprint went into the same dirt with the high-heeled cowboy boot. And, well, at that time, I weighed 165 pounds. These were all things that we did prior to leaving the scene. It was a good thing we did, because that night, when we came back, of course, we were pretty excited about just seeing it, and we sat there and talked about it until 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning. Around 5.30 a.m. or so, it started raining, and it was just a pouring down rain. I told Roger we'd better get up there and do something about the tracks, or they'd wash out. And he said, no, it stopped raining after a while. Well, I went on ahead and got up and put the saddle on my horse and decided I'd ride up there while it was raining really hard. And Roger says, ah, it'll quit, don't ride up there. I said, no, I'm going to go ahead and ride on up there. Well... I'd gotten a couple of cardboard boxes for Mr. Hogson to cover up these tracks the night before. So I went outside to get the couple of boxes that we'd folded up out there. Oh, they were just soggy old pieces of cardboard. I disregarded taking those back up there, so I rode back up to the scene, pulled some bark off some trees and covered up the tracks as best I could and then went back to camp. By then, we decided it wasn't going to quit raining. The little creek that was six or seven feet across was now ten or twelve feet across and four feet deep. We were on the side of the creek, which had to be crossed with a truck to get out to the main road. I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and get across the creek with the truck and get started out. And of course, Roger thought it would stop raining, and he suggested I leave him there and come back and pick him up. Well, in the meantime, why, uh, they had called the track dog people in Canada, and they were supposed to come down. I think they also phoned you, Mr. Green, and Rene de Hinden. I'm not sure when all that happened, but I do remember the people in Canada had been called with the track dogs to come on down to see if we could track it up through the mountains from where we last saw it. Green. Yeah, I think it was BC Museum that called, because that was the people who phoned me. Gimlin. Was that it? Oh, I, I couldn't recall just exactly how that went. Green. 
A man from the museum had come down with me at the beginning of September, come down after I was there and told them the tracks were there. Gimlin. Oh, was that it? Okay, well, I don't remember just exactly how those sequences happened. Green. Yes, well, it was from him I learned of the movie. The call must have gone to the museum. Gimlin. Oh, must have, yeah. Well, Roger didn't do that. I think it was Al Hogson. I think Roger had talked to him about the calling. Well, they had talked about it, but I was not present at the time they did. Green. About how far was it from your camp to where this, uh, Gimlin? Oh, a calculated guess, I think. It was about four miles. Green. That movie you took, comparing the depths of the tracks, that would be the one that you showed the University of British Columbia? Gimlin. Yes. That's the one showed in British Columbia. Green. Are you aware that that movie has been missing almost ever since? Gimlin. Yes, I am aware of that. I asked before Roger passed away, and his reply was that Alda Atley had that somewhere. He didn't tell me exactly where. Roger said that Al has the film in his possession somewhere. Of course, I asked Alda Atley about it, and he denied having it and denied it ever existed. That seems strange to me, because I knew it existed, and Roger knew it existed. Green. And so did all the people at the University of British Columbia, eh? Gimlin. Exactly. See, so why the film disappeared, I'll never know and probably never find out. Green. Sounds almost as if Al lost it. Gimlin. Yeah, or sold it. Who knows what happened to it? Green. Well... You'd think if it had been sold, it would have shown up sometime. Gimlin. Well, you know Al and Roger toured with that film afterwards, and it's hard telling what went on in those days. And, of course, Roger made some deal with American National, which I never did know. Green. But you know Rene de Hinton and I were the first people to make a deal for the use of the film itself. Al brought to Seattle the film of the creature, and a great deal of footage of that. Roger had taken of the waterfalls and the trees and various things like that. The footprint film was supposed to be there, but it wasn't. Gimlin. Was it supposed to be on the same roll of film? Green. Oh, no. Gimlin. It was just a different roll of film then, eh? Green. Well, I don't remember now if he brought it in a lot of little boxes, or whether the film had already been spliced. Gimlin. Yeah, I see. Green. But anyway, we showed it expecting to find the footprint film, but it wasn't there. Gimlin. Yes, but as I didn't know much about movie cameras or splicing film or any of that sort of thing, well, anybody could have shown me the film, and I wouldn't have been able to detect a splice except... I knew what was taken. We all saw it, you know? Of course, the film footage of the creature wasn't that good, but the other footage was plain. It was taken during the sunlight hours, and well, I thought it was good film. I don't know what you guys thought about it, but I thought it was a pretty good film. Green. Oh, yes. As I remember, I only saw it once, but it was perfectly clear, I thought. Gimlin. Well... I saw it at the same time you guys did. I don't really recall everything that happened way back then now, 
But, uh, of course, there's a lot of speculation at the time, and Roger and Al had big dollar signs in their eyes, you know. They were just going to go here and go there, and, well, we did travel a lot with that film. There was a lot of money spent. Of course, Argosy bought one article at that particular time. I think it was the fall of 1967. Argosy bought the article. After that, Al and Roger traveled with the film and promoted it somewhat. That was about the time I went back to work because I didn't have any income. They just kind of cut me out completely of the thing. It took me forever to, well, you know, kind of break even. After Roger died, I had to go to court to get any rights and all out of it, which, you know, was kind of an odd thing. But between Mrs. Patterson's attorney and her, it was a deal where they did not recognize that I had any interest at all in the film. At one time, I was supposed to be one-third partner on everything that happened, if there was money coming in, but then that all changed. The film itself, now maybe Al lost it. I really don't know what happened to that film footage where Roger and I took film of the tracks and my boot tracks and the horses and so forth. Green. Remember how deep the horse tracks were compared to that of the Sasquatch tracks? Gimlin. Well, the horse tracks were not as deep as the Sasquatch tracks, of course. I just walked the horse through. I walked him as slow as I could, but you figure he was distributing his weight on four feet. The tracks were better than half as deep, but they weren't as deep as the tracks of the creature. Green but the area of the four hoofprints wouldn't be any greater than two of those footprints, would it? Gimlin. No? No, the hoofprint area, if you're familiar with sizes of horses' hoofprints, well, the horse wore a size one shoe, which is not quite six inches in diameter, probably more like five inches in diameter with a number one shoe on the front foot. The shoes were a little smaller on the back feet. They were size ones trimmed down is what they were. Of course, I rode the horse too, so there was my extra weight plus the horse's weight, plus the saddle and the tack and everything I had on him. There was probably a total weight of about, you know, 1,400 pounds. Green. How about when you jumped off the stump? Gimlin. Now, when I jumped off the stump with a high heel boot in the dirt, the footprint went almost as deep as the creature's footprint. We didn't exactly measure we didn't have a ruler, we just took pictures of it. Viewing it, the film, you could actually tell better for depth. By looking at it and making a judgment on the side of it, well, it wasn't as deep as the creature's footprint. They weren't exactly side by side either. There were probably two or three feet between my track and the creature's track, but there was some distance between them. The soil was practically the same. That soil had all been washed in there from the flood a year prior. There could have been some variation in the soil. We really didn't get into it that deep. It was a thing where, well, we were pretty excited about it and all, and there was a time element there to get all these things done before dark. Green. You know when you walked around the tracks, when you took that movie, your boot tracks were there too, weren't they? Gimlin. Yes, right. We walked around it quite a bit, trying to stay out of the tracks as much as possible. Green. But still, you would have been close then. Gimlin. Oh yeah, just walking. We were close, but the boot prints lacked a whole lot going as deep. 
considerable amount, going as deep as the creature's tracks were. Green. Going back now to what happened when you first saw the creature, how did it come into view? Gimlin. You mean when we first saw it, John? Green. Did you come around a corner, or did you see it from a distance, or... Gimlin. No, it wasn't exactly a corner. We came around a bend. We were riding the creek beds, is what we were doing, and so when we came around the bend in the creek, well, this thing was standing alongside the creek, standing there upright. We were about 60 to 80 feet away from it when we first saw it. Then, at different times, we were different distances from it. At one time, I was probably as close as 60 feet to it when I rode across the creek and got off my horse. When Roger ran across the creek, well, the thing immediately started walking away. Then, whenever it was that the horses started spooking and throwing fits, well, the commotion started and the creature just started walking away. Green. So, it was standing when you first saw it? Gimlin. Yeah, it was standing still, right at the edge of the creek when we first saw it. Yes. Green. Right at the edge? Gimlin. Right by the edge of the creek, yes. Green, but fully upright. Gimlin, fully upright, standing upright, yes. Green, what exactly did the horses do? Gimlin, well, Roger was in the front, and his horse tried to spin around and come back. I was in riding behind him on the big horse, leading the pack horse along. My horse was kind of spooky, but not near as bad as Roger's horse. Roger's horse was a spooky little horse. Well, he was young, and uh, the horse I was riding was an older cow horse, been roped on and used for a lot of things. Roger's horse threw all kinds of fits, and when Roger got off the horse, he ran off, and the pack horse jerked free from me and ran off back down the way we came. Green, did Roger's horse buck? Gimlin, no, it never did buck. Just reared and jumped all around. His horse was in front of me, and of course, I wasn't looking straight at him all the time. This all happened in a couple of heartbeats, you know. It happened fast. Green. But then Roger's horse didn't go down? Gimlin. No, it didn't fall down. Just reared up is all. Green. Well, because this has been said since, you know, that Roger's horse fell down. Gimlin. No, no, his horse never did fall down. No. Green. Okay, well, that's interesting. So, did he get the camera while he was still on the horse? Gimlin. Yes, while he was stepping down off the horse. Um, well, a lot of people have asked me about that, and they probably don't realize the agility that Roger had. He was a tremendous athlete. Roger had tremendous agility. He had been a rodeo rider, and did gymnastics, and this wasn't a full-size horse that Roger was riding either. It was a pony, a small horse. Green. Yeah, I've seen those little horses. He used to haul them in a Volkswagen bus. Gimlin. Yeah, we used to haul two of them in a VW bus. Roger rode these horses because they were easy to get on and off, and because Roger wasn't a very big man. So actually, when he was getting off his horse, he always kept that saddlebag ready. The saddlebag had two flaps on it to keep it buckled down. He kept one buckled and one of them unbuckled so he could get into his camera in the event that he needed it in a hurry, and this was the case at that particular time. Green. So, 
He practiced getting the camera out of the saddlebags in a hurry? Gimlin. Oh, yeah, lots of times. Yes, he did. That was his theory, that if he ever had to get it, um, keep one buckle on there so that it would not bounce out while he was riding and the other one loose so he could get it out in a hurry. Green. Did Roger have a gun at all? Gimlin. Yeah? Roger had a three hundred three British rifle in his saddle scabbard, and I had a thirty out six rifle in my saddle scabbard. Green. Did you have any expectation that you might see one? Gimlin. No, I surely didn't. I don't think Roger did either. We always carried rifles with us when we went into the mountains. At least I always did, and I'm sure Roger did too. Green. Had you discussed whether you would shoot at one of these creatures if you saw one? Gimlin. Yes, many times. We had talked about it, but decided unless it was necessary, we would never shoot. In other words, unless it was violent or attempted to attack us or something in that sense of the word, you know? Green. So when Roger was off his horse and ran after the creature with the camera, what did you do? Gimlin. Well, Roger said, cover me as he pulled the camera out. Well, if they don't understand what that means, well, he didn't have any protection, just the camera in his hand, and in case something were to happen. Well, what I did was ride across the creek, pull my rifle out of the scabbard, step down off the horse, and just stood there with my rifle. I never raised the rifle like I'd shoot or anything like that, just held it in my hand, and with the other hand, I held my horse to keep him from getting away from me. Green. So there was never a gun pointed at the creature? Gimlin. No, never. I didn't point the rifle at the creature. Green. Did you ever feel like the creature was acting at all threatening? Gimlin. No, it kept walking away all the time. It turned and looked around once at Roger and once at me. The first time it turned and looked was the time that I rode across the creek. I was off to its right, behind it, and that is when it made one turn with its head. Then Roger relocated himself on a log, steadying the camera at one time. Then, when he ran to another position to get a better view and a better picture, the creature turned its head a second time, and I assume it was looking at Roger. When you view the film, I never could really decide whether it turned to look at me or Roger, because well, all these things happened tremendously fast and I was trying to hold on to my horse and a rifle at the same time and also keep an eye on the creature and Roger. Green, do you have much of a mental image now of what you saw as opposed to what you saw in the movie since that time? Gimlin, well, I don't think that has changed much. Yes, I still have a mental image of what really happened that day. There may be a few things that I've overlooked or forgotten over the years, but basically... The time of the day and how the thing moved and what we did is pretty much still in my mind. Pretty exactly in my mind, because even though we were excited, you never seem to forget those things. Green. When you first saw it, how big did you think it was, Bob? Gimlin. Well, I thought it was about six and a half feet tall, and I would have guessed it weighed, you know, 250, 300 pounds. It did have tremendous muscle bulk. This was an estimated guess at the time, of course. I'm not used to seeing things like that. I was just guessing weight compared to the amount of muscle quarter horses have. 
It was as big as a quarter horse, naturally, and the height, because well, we were up on our horses at the time we first saw the creature. Therefore, it probably didn't look as tall as it really was. Now, the horse I was riding was a 16-hand horse. One hand is four inches on a horse. My horse was 16 hands tall, plus my saddle. That would make him approximately 16 and a half hands high. Now, of course, with me sitting up there, you can figure me eye level was about nine feet high. So anything actually less than nine feet, you'd be looking down on it. Green. Was it obvious whether it was a male or female? Gimlin. Well, it appeared to be a female, but, you know, I had never seen one. I had never even seen a track until that day, so I couldn't even make a statement whether it was male or female. But the film indicates that it had mammary glands, so we assumed it was a female. Now, they had told us that the tracks they had found in the road were three different sizes. We talked about that at length and discussed it, and assumed that, well, there was a male, a female, and a younger one with those three different sized tracks. So our first assumption was it was a female. Green. What color did it appear to be to you? Gimlin. It was dark brown, brownish color. Green. Then it wasn't as dark as it looks in the film? Gimlin. No, it wasn't as dark as it looks in the film. Uh, it was a uh, long ways from being tan, but it wasn't a very dark brown like it shows in the film. It was a lighter color brown. Of course, it was lighter in different areas of his body, too. I suppose there were the, where the hair is shorter, it was lighter and vice versa. It might have been darker where the hair was shorter. Green. Can you remember details on his face? Gimlin. Yes, I can. The face would have a flat type nose. The lips, well, I can't really remember what the lips looked like, except it did have lips and we could see its teeth. The eyes were large eyes, but not big round eyes like a horse or a cow, but they were large eyes. The hair on its face was short. There wasn't a whole lot of hair around its cheeks and down along the side of its face. Best I can remember is the face didn't have a whole lot of hair on it. Green. What would the skin color be then? Gimlin. It seemed like it was a brownish color skin. Green. Was it doing anything with his hands? Gimlin. You mean, uh, green. Well, in the film, they were just swinging. Gimlin. Well, John, that is all I ever saw. Uh, it never raised its arms or anything to that effect. It just walked with an easy type motion away from us and swung its arms like a human being. The best I can remember is the hands were about the same color as the face. Green. The bottoms of its feet looked quite light colored, but that could be the sand. Gimlin. Yeah, I think that was the case. The sand wasn't a white sand. It was kind of a funny-type soil there where the creature walked, and it was lighter-colored dirt. I think you can remember the color of the soil, John. Green. Oh, yeah. Gimlin. It was pretty light-colored soil in there, and might have been why the soles of the feet looked light in the film footage. Green. In the movie, it hasn't quite disappeared when the picture stops, because... It looks as if it's about to disappear behind a big pile of, well, it looked like a stump or a pile of wood or of some kind. Gimlin. 
Yeah, it hadn't disappeared when the film footage, uh, well, when Roger ran out of film, because it traveled on, oh, probably not half again the distance of where he, another 30 or 40 yards. There was some trees down in that area, I suppose from the flood and so forth. There were many fallen trees and different things in that area. Then when the creature did disappear up a little draw, why, I wanted to follow it. Of course, Roger didn't want to follow it because he was on foot and he didn't want to be left there. We thought there was possibility there were two others around. Well, we didn't know at the time whether that was one of the ones that had made the tracks up above the scene or not. Roger was a little bit upset about that, so he wanted to catch his horse and get some more film in the camera. It took quite a while to catch the horse and to catch the catch horse as well and tie them up. Then we rode on in pursuit of the creature. Now see, the way it went to see if we could see more tracks, or I don't know, I thought maybe we could see this creature again. I don't really know why I was thinking that. We never did see it again, but we saw, we saw the scuffs in the gravel and in the creek bed where that indicated where it possibly ran when it went out of sight. We measured 68 to 72 inches in the stride, which was not even close to accurate, because it was, as I have said, just scuffs in the gravel. Then we tracked on up the creek bed quite a ways. We saw one wet half of a footprint on a rock as it went up into the mountains, and that was as far as it went with it. Green. So, there wasn't sand to show footprints beyond where you saw it? Gimlin. No, it was gravel mostly but there was sand and dirt where it went across the creek, but it never left a footprint in the sand or in the dirt or soil. It did leave a wet mark on the rock in the creek where it went across and went on into the hills from there. Green. Were you ever close to it, closer to it than Roger was when he took the pictures? Gimlin. Yeah, I was. When I rode across the creek and got off my horse, I was closer than Roger was with the camera at the time. I rode fairly close to the creature, Green, and I suppose Roger wouldn't have had much of a look at it because, well, he was looking through the lens of the camera all the time. Gimlin. Well, yes, I feel that I had a better look at it. We talked about it, like I said, when we got back to the camp that night, and we stayed up and talked about it for hours, you know, talked about what each one of us had seen. There was things that I had seen about the creature that Roger didn't. Of course, he couldn't see it too well because he was looking through that camera. Green. When you got off the horse, what size did it appear to be then? Gimlin. Well, to be plumb honest with you, I didn't even think about sizes at the time it was going away. It was large, but I never gave any thought to how high it was or how heavy it was because well, it was moving away from me. That was about all that was in my mind at that time, that this creature was of no threat to us, and, oh yeah, I was trying to keep my horse under control because, you know, I never had any idea what might happen, and I sure didn't want to be on foot. So, I knew I could get back on my horse, and maybe if I had to, well, if I had to, if I had to shoot it and it didn't go down, well, I could get on my horse and I could get out of there and Roger would have to fend for himself. I'm not a coward, but 
I'll be darned if I was going to stick around if this creature got violent, you know. So I was concentrating on keeping my rifle in my hand and my horse under control. Green. Well, there is, of course, this widespread opinion that it was um, some kind of masquerade having the film. Of course, there is a certain amount of blurring and a certain amount of underexposure of the creature itself. You can't see the face, for instance. You had a much better look at it than that. What was your impression? Gimlin. My impression is that there's a creature, and I don't feel it was a man in a suit. If it had to be a man in a suit, well, I don't know how they would have gotten him back there into that particular area. I have heard this story and thought about it many times. God, at one point with the film circulating all around and people criticizing, I was almost to the point of not even being sure myself. But I thought about it all these years, and I'm quite sure it wasn't a man in a suit. I saw the face. I saw the expression on its face. With all the muscles and arms and legs, I don't know how it could have been a man in a suit. Plus, I never had anything to do with a man in a suit, and, well, if Roger did, how would he know that I wouldn't shoot it? In my opinion, that creature was not a man in a suit. Green. Could you see the muscles move when it walked? Gimlin. Yes, I could see the muscles clearly, and that was one of the deciding factors, in my opinion, that it was no man in a suit. The thighs, the buttocks, the arms and shoulders, well, you could see it move clearly underneath the hair. Green. You had estimated this thing to weigh a great deal less than the horse, and yet the footprints were deeper. What explanation could you think of? Gimlin. Well, you asked my estimation when I first saw it. Green. No, no, but... Gimlin. Oh, you mean afterwards? Well, God, John, there was no way of really knowing. We knew it had to be heavier than it appeared to be when we first saw it. Of course, we thought the horse's weight was distributed on four feet, and I'm not good with the mathematics of such things, but uh, if you figure 1,400 pounds of horse distributed on four feet, well, that'd be mm, 350, 400 pounds. So we figured it must have weighed much more than we originally figured. Of course, Roger did some research by going over to the zoo in Seattle, watched the gorillas there, and asked how much they weighed and so forth. They had one over there named Bobo, and I don't remember his weight exactly, but I do remember he weighed more than it looked like it weighed. Green. Yes, I did the same thing with those gorillas. Gimlin. Uh-huh. Green. And there was a female gorilla there that was quite small, but was tremendously heavy. Gimlin. Yeah, John, that is what Roger was telling me. I wasn't all that interested at the time, whatever it was, you know. In the end, it probably weighed approximately 500 pounds to make such tracks and that deep in the dirt. Of course, when it walked, it kicked up a certain amount of dirt from the pressure of the toes pushing it away. Green. Well, it would have to distribute the weight on different parts of the foot when it walked. Otherwise, there's no way it could have made a deeper print than of the horse. Gimlin. Yeah, that's right. Green. If its feet were put down flat, each foot would have had oh, an area as big as three of the horse's feet. Gimlin. Yes. Green. You would have to roll that imprint in some way or another. Gimlin. Yeah, right. 
Green. So when you saw it, up until that moment, you had never seen a track? Gimlin. Never. Never seen a track at all. That's right. Green. And you weren't all convinced that there were any such animals to be seen? Gimlin. That is true. I was not convinced that they really existed. You know, I figure Roger must have had a reason. He showed me plaster casts, and I heard different stories from people who had seen them. So I thought, well, maybe there is something to this, but I just didn't believe in them, basically. Didn't believe it was possible that they could exist. Even after we got the film, many people said, ah, they don't exist. And still people tell me it's a bunch of malarkey, you know? There will always be a certain amount of people you just can't convince lest they see one. Green. Well, when you did see it, there wasn't any doubt that you were looking at an animal, was there? Gimlin. There's no doubt in my mind at all. Green. Well, okay. That ought to do it, Bob. Thanks a lot. Gimlin. You're quite welcome, John. That's the end of the interview. Thank you for listening. Talawa Indian Stories, Del Norte County, California, 1800s. The Talawa Indians inhabited the far northwestern parts of northern California, just below what is now the Oregon border. For more on the Talawa, here is a good page. Catherine's Recollections Anne and Red Cody recently met and interviewed a woman named Catherine, who was of Tolowa Indian heritage. Her mother was Tolowa, father an Irish immigrant logger. She is now 72 and recalls many legends about Bigfoot, though in no particular order. The following are her recollections about the stories she heard growing up in Northern California. I remember my grandfather telling stories of a large, hair-covered man-creature. As a young boy, he was hunting and felt like he was not alone. He sat still near a bush and waited to see who might be following him. Not thirty feet away was a tall, muscular, hair-covered creature standing behind a tree. He watched it for a few minutes until it turned and walked away up the hill. He told his father about this, and his father said that they were a quiet people who shared the bounty of the forests and rivers with the Indians. Many had seen, but it was considered evil to kill one, as they had never harmed the Indians. In the evenings, they could be heard screaming in the woods, communicating with each other. My brother, Joe, ten years my junior, saw what appeared to be a mother with a youngster in tow. The infant was playing with a stick near the creek, while the mother stood stock still and watched. When she noticed my brother across the creek, she grabbed the young one by the shoulder, pulled him in front of her, and she herded him into the trees. She looked back a few times to see if Joe was following. He was amazed at how quiet and stealthy they were. The mother was dark and uniform in color, while the young one was more mottled, with lighter fur on the torso and shoulders. Her grandfather told this story, and she would put the year in the 1880s. In the morning, our parents gathered all the family to clean and fillet salmon from the catch. We would prepare the fish for smoking. We left the entrails for the animals and birds to eat. After a day of work, we packed up the fillets and started on the walk back to the fire area. I left my knife on the bank and returned to fetch it. As I approached the cleaning area, 
I saw the big, hairy man squatting down and eating the fish entrails. When he saw me, he stood and roared, perhaps to scare me. He did not want to share his meal. I ran back and told my mother, and she said I should never venture out alone. We returned in an hour, and the huge pile of entrails was gone. There were more entrails left there than a bunch of raccoons or other scavengers could have taken that fast. Again from Grandfather. We would see him once in a while, mostly in the evenings just after the sun would go down, sometimes in the very early morning. They knew we were there, but would not harm us. They would go out in darkness so they would not have to be seen by people. They would sometimes come near the fire at night, but stay just out of sight. Your nose would tell you they were near, as they smelled like rotted meat. My father once saw two big creatures standing on opposite sides of a small clearing, yelling and throwing sticks. He thinks they were fighting for the space, or perhaps for food. He saw them many times, but was never afraid. They would sometimes take his food at night, but they would never hurt people. When my brother was a baby, our mother left him in a hammock when she went for water. She came back and a creature was very near him, smelling him, but it did not touch him. It knew it was a harmless baby, but was just curious. It frightened our mother, but the creature went up the hill when she approached. If Red finds the rest of his notes, I'll send them along. Best wishes, Anne Rowling's Cody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.